everybody, and welcome to this inter-season finale of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers Ward, and joining me, also as always, Matthew fucking Stockton. No dying on me now, Mr. Matem. Not until you give me Jack's phone number. You already have my phone number, Matthew. But I want it oh. from a nearly dead Tim. <laughs> I mean, that's a fair... That is a requirement. I, uh, I insist on people trying to get my phone number. People are trying to chat me up. It's like, yeah, you have to get it from my nearly dead friend, I'm afraid. That's how your wife met you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> True story. Yeah. <laughs> Approached me in a bar and I was like, sorry, you're going to have to talk to dying Tim over there. Oh. Thank you, Tim. Speaking of Tim, <laughs> it's Tim. Same thing happened to me with sequel number two, remember? I had no idea nothing's going on, right? I come home one day and the studio is empty. And I mean completely empty. They even took the ice cube trays out of the freezer. What kind of sick bastards takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? That is an excellent question. People yeah. who are very good and thorough. And <laughs> thorough. And thorough. <laughs> well, folks, if you've... No way. There's no, no way, way you have guessed from those quotes. Not a fucking chance. Just in case you haven't seen the title of the episode this week, we are in fact talking about remakes of international films. Because, oh boy, there's some shit to dig through. Oh yeah. We also concede that depending on where you're listening to this or where you're from, remakes of international films is all films almost. Yeah. <laughs> all remakes, because it's like, we have, we, have, we have a thing to explain later. Yes, we will dive into that. We will get into what we define as international, what counts as a remake, all that kind of stuff. Perhaps sowing some seeds for season 12 because we're doing equalizers and we're talking about remakes and stuff mm. in the not too distant future. But before we get to all of that stuff, before we get to actually talking about these international remakes and all that good stuff, let's have a little mosey on down to patreon.com slash sequelizers and say thank you very much to everybody who supports us on there. Whether you support us at the lowest of the tier or the highest of the tiers, we very much appreciate your support. If you go to patreon.com, you get early access, you get ad free. You get bonus merch, you get bonus content. We've had multiple bonus in-season episodes. We will have some movie commentaries coming up with season 12 as well that are exclusive to the Patreon stuff. If you want to get all that good stuff, like I said, that's the £10 tier or higher for bonus stuff. If you go to the £30 tier or higher, you can get a shout out like these fine folks have done. They're called the executive producers. David Selinger. Congratulations on passing the detective's exam and welcome to the Special Investigation Unit. Uh, whoop do fucking do. Marcus Lindstrom. I got a question. How fucked up are you? Family's all criminals except for the old man, huh? And Canis Rufus. You, however, grew up on the North Shore, huh? A lotty fucking die. Thank you, executive producers, for your support. As always, we very, very much appreciate it. But if you go to the highest of the tiers, not only do you get to pick an episode for us to do in the main season. You also get to pick into season episodes as well. And in fact, this very week was picked by one of our VIPs. This very finale episode. The VIPs for this week are Jonathan Firth-Clark. You're upper middle class during the weeks, then you're dropping your eyes and you're hanging in the big bad Southie projects with your daddy the fucking donkey on the weekends. Hyper Dude Man. What's a lace curtain motherfucker like you doing in the stadies? Josh Miles. What's the matter, smart ass? You don't know any fucking Shakespeare? Stuart Maine. Fuck yourself. I'm tired from fucking your wife. How's your mother? Good, she's tired from fucking my father. Philip Morgan. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. And the VIP that picked remakes of international films as our discussion topic for this week, the one and only James McDowell. Oh, who the fuck are you? I'm the guy who does his job. 
You must be the other guy. Thank you, EPs. Thank you, VIPs. As we say, pretty much every week, you make this show possible. We very, very much appreciate your support. And we do have a bit of discussion to, to kind of touch on with the Patreon stuff. Because we've got a lot of shit going on right now. We've got moves, we've got holidays, we've got jobs and stuff. A lot of busy stuff happening in the lives of the sequelizers. So, life! Yeah, life is happening, unfortunately. <laughs> we should be grateful, I guess. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, we should absolutely be grateful. But particularly for you patrons, we will be pausing the Patreon payment. So you will not get charged for March or April of 2023. If you listen to this way in the future, you don't need to worry about this shit. You've probably already got all the cool bonus stuff and hopefully the world is a slightly better place. Yeah. It's probably not. Hopefully everything is slightly better than it was back in 2023 when we were recording this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for you public Our folks. hope for over. the future is very yeah. damp. Yeah. I've lived enough life yeah. to realise it's all there. We're deeply sceptical and cynical here, yeah. here at Sequelizers. For you listening to the public feed, that is, if, you, if you're listening to this when it goes out on Tuesdays on the usual podcast feed and all that kind of stuff, the next few weeks, so the next couple of months actually, are going to be filled by Patreon-exclusive content that is now going to be added to the public feed. And then, when we come back in May, we will be back with Requalize. Season 12, we'll be back in a couple of months. Basically, we're taking a break. I'm moving house. Tim's super busy at his job. Matt's going abroad. That combination maelstrom of shit has kind of, kind of culminated in us needing to take a few weeks off and have a break and stuff. We will still be recording, just to clarify. <laughs> This is a break for you guys, not a break for us. We're basically going to record like hell during that time. So we're ahead of ourselves and ready for that season launch. We will have a bunch of episodes ready to go and we will be ahead of ourselves nice so we can kind of get set and kick off yeah. season 12 how we want to kick yeah. it off. And if, if we aren't ahead, Matt isn't allowed to go on holiday. Those are the rules. We're going to lock him in his house and not let him leave. Look, what's going to happen is... For those who've seen Whiplash, <laughs> there's a scene where J.K. Simmons is just screaming at three different drummers, one of whom is Martella, faster, 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 and they're drumming as fast as they can, their knuckles are bleeding and shit. That's us writing and recording yeah. and editing <laughs> the episodes, and if we are lucky enough... Are you pushing or dragging, Matthew? I'm neither rushing nor dragging, I am merely trying to go on holiday. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then I get to leave and go on holiday, and come back and then do it all You can only again. go on holiday when we throw a chair at you. That yeah, that's how jazz works. Fucking jazz. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, in all seriousness, please do. We basically did a blog post on our Patreon, which is public, so you can all go and check it out. That will be linked in the show notes, so please do click on that if you want to get more information and see a delightful picture of our faces. It was also shared on our social media and all that kind of stuff. So mm. yeah, like I said, no more Patreon. You will not get charged for this period while we are not releasing new content on Patreon. However, if you're listening to this right now, we do still have the What We Watch recently. That's the most recent thing that just came out before this episode came out. And this episode basically will be the final thing before we kick into all the Patreon exclusive stuff. We haven't decided which episodes are going to be yet, but there'll be some mm. bangers if you listen on the public feed. So enjoy. It could be like almost like a, a look behind the curtain, because as we've said on the show many, many times before, the bonus interseason discussions are full episodes yeah, yeah yeah we're not talking like half hour like half-ass little things they are full often two sometimes mm. three hours long yeah. where we do a full interseason episode essentially just as patreon exclusive so so, yeah. so basically for, for the majority of people who are not on patreon just the regular listener uh enjoying the show 
you're gonna get more into season for a little while yeah, you it's just a, a bit few, older a few extra weeks of interseason stuff yeah. exactly and then like i said we'll hit the ground running we will be back with season 12 very very soon nothing else is going on there's no gas leaks there's no <laughs> big fights between sequelizers anything like that mm. we just busy exactly yep life just happens but we very much appreciate your support hopefully this is the best resolution for anybody if you do have any questions or anything like that please feel free to email us hit us up on social media if you're on patreon message us on patreon that's the quickest and easiest way if you do have any questions about that sort of stuff we we are our own customer support and all that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. please do let us know and we will answer any questions you have so yeah hopefully that won't interrupt people's flow too much and you can kind of just carry on as normal if you're a public podcast person and if you're a patreon you won't get charged and then when all the cool stuff happens we'll be back for that in a couple of months time boosh shall we kick into the episode boys we get stuck in because there's yeah as i said at the top of the show there's a lot to fucking dig into here and that's kind of it's a very nice lead-in to season 12 even if it's not literally a lead-in to season 12 (laughs) at this point but bad remakes is a tale as old as time almost as much as bad sequels it feels because yeah fuck me there's a lot of this bad stuff and especially the topic we want to kind of focus on is international films being remade for english-speaking audiences which is kind of the angle we're going to take on this right yes absolutely because obviously we don't want to retread stuff we're going to be talking about in the next coming season (laughs) um but we will skirt around it quite a bit um i'm I'm gonna do a thing the matt usually does i'm gonna go back a hundred (laughs) years uh just very briefly youth yeah just very briefly so um the idea of international remakes of international movies, effectively. That's a bit of a caveat there. So the best way to look at it is uh, where a film has been released in one country and another country has said, I'm having that. Not just a remake where like an American movie comes out and an American movie has remade it. The one reason I want to go back 100 years is because when cinema was first um, born, there was a huge era of remakes. Because um, this is not a contemporary or modern thing. It's like, mm. oh... Hollywood's devoid of ideas. It's always been devoid of ideas. <laughs> but it was more the idea that the biggest era of uh, of remakes was when we went from silent movie to sound. Mm. And I was like, holy shit, imagine this movie with sound. Ben Hur, for argument's sake. Now it's a long period of time between those two things. Mm. But, you know, it's like a silent movie version. It's like, we could do another version of that now. Yeah. We could do something better than that. And even further back, there was a thing I shared on Twitter recently that was two versions of Oliver Twist. Oh, yes. That had been filmed. I think one was like oh, 1918 yeah. and one was 1927 or something like that. Yep. And there was such a huge difference to that, even though that's what most people would just consider beginning of film days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because it was the very beginning of film, the first one is basically just a play that a camera has been pointed at. And then in mm-hmm. the second one, there are outside shots and there are close-ups and stuff like that and you can see the language of film evolving and so Mm -hmm. in those early days there was because the language of film was was still new and still being developed and then you have huge revolutions like sound coming along Mm -hmm. there's so much reason to remake stuff then it makes absolute sense that you're like well we can tell that story again and we can tell it in a whole new way you know We've invented color film. Now let's <laughs> let's go back and yeah. retell that story, yep. but with color. And you know, now 
the, the, there's that's in 3d <laughs> yeah um god yeah we go through those phases right you're like oh we have animation now do an animated version yeah we've got 3d animations 3d animations. now yeah. it's 3d in that everything slightly comes out to the camera and then comes mm. back again because mm. avatar happened like yeah okay great yeah it's brilliant. the leaps of technology that make it more appealing to want to do another version as mm. well as monetary reasons to want to do it so for example yeah we are of an age where we grew up with the first toy story I imagine we all saw it in the cinema, Jack. I don't. I don't think I did. I don't. No, nah, you'd have been like four or five. Um, I my first cinema experience, as previously documented on this show, Alien versus Predator Requiem. Absolutely <laughs> not. Thank God. Uh, it's Power Rangers the movie. Yes, which is around about the same. It sort was of time, the same time. Yeah, but I think I saw Toy Story on either TV or VHS. Yeah, which is mm. all good. But the point I'm trying to make is that effectively we grew up with that animation, mm-hmm. whereas kids today are like, "This looks shit." Mm. They don't say that because it's still enjoyable. It's still nice and it's still enjoyable as, a, as it's an experience. It's still a good film. It holds up. But it's, I mean, it's never too long before somebody goes, mm, we could do a new version now. Yeah. Our computer graphics are better. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, leave it alone. Yeah. And what the big motivation of this is mm-hmm. money. Money. Yeah. It's all about the money, baby. Yeah. Especially when it comes to international stuff being remade for. Typically, we say like American audiences, but the English-speaking world as a mm. as a broader concept, especially with us being free Brits sat here. Sure, it's an interesting thing because we've had to to kind of jump forward now from your hundred years ago and the examples we're talking about from the nineteen tens and nineteen twenties. Mm. <laughs> something like Parasite suddenly being like, that's not just in the foreign film category; it's actually winning awards mm. in categories. Full stop. Yes, and people being like. No, this is one of the best films, regardless of language, culture, mm. all that kind of stuff. Go and watch this fucking Korean movie because Bong Joon-ho is one of the great living directors mm. and y'all have been sleeping on him for like a decade. Mm-hmm. Finally, we're getting that kind of recognition. And then everybody's like, yeah, but are they just going to remake it? It's like, yeah, probably. Mm. Ugh, God. Yeah. yeah. Well, and- see, he said it's like a, a, that, that one inch hurdle of subtitles. Oh, a screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I find that fascinating that it is such a barrier for some people and it is just this weird thing where I feel like we're slowly chipping away and international films are getting wider and wider recognition as kind of things like awards and stuff mm. get a bit more internationally friendly, but there's still a long way to go. Which is still preface with they're obviously we're not just being sort of subtitle snobs. Um, because obviously no, I'm, a, I'm a dub's not a sub <laughs> when it I mean, comes to anime. Yeah. But, but with regards to things like obviously dyslexia and other bits and pieces with it's a lot. To oh, read uh, yeah. Together. In terms of yeah. accessibility. Yeah. Absolutely. But what I mean yeah, is yeah. you could still watch a dub. There's usually a version available to you in theory. It's the fact someone says, no, I want to see a version of Parasite with Mark Wahlberg. And it's like, why, why, why? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Why would you want to see Mark Wahlberg? That's the darkest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. I'm living in this house. <laughs> um, Mark, Parasite starring Mark Wahlberg and Jared Leto. I oh, hate, hate you. <laughs> I hate you. Tim. Oh my god. Assume Jared Leto's the rich guy and yeah, Mark yes. Wahlberg's the poor guy. Yeah. Again, not to spoil Parasite. Fucking hell. That's Christ too... on a bike. It I careful hate that. I hate that so much. <laughs> Somewhere there's an executive listening. <laughs> and they just got a boner. Yeah. The monkey Ugh. pour titans around his dick. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cutting off the circulation. Happens, boys. That happens every time Jared Leto gets a job. It's not like an angel gets their wings. The <laughs> monkey paw closes tighter around the executive's dick. <laughs> it's morbid time. 
<laughs> oh god, it would be Sony produced as well. Yeah, fucking hell. Ugh. So anyway, that aside. Um, so yeah, remakes are always an appeal in terms of technology. In terms of sometimes you do want to do these things, but let's face it, money is the motivator and yeah. and xenophobia because people Absolutely. aren't going to watch them. Mm. And if you buy the rights to international distribution. It's an investment to make that movie, but you feel it's like any IP, whether it's adapting a book or a comic or whatever it happens to be, or even a video game, arguably. Um, it's this logic of there's an established IP. We can say this is successful, but it's weird because very few people know the audience. People who are like watch the original don't necessarily want to see this remake. And people who are watching this movie may not give a shit as a remake in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting because it does we said you know it goes back to the very earliest days of hollywood and it comes less from this modern mindset of intellectual property and brand recognition and it is more about we know that this is a story that you can tell well in film mm -hmm. and that we know we know that there is a, an audience for this because it did well in france and mm. so it worked there why not here and it's still that very same uh, unimaginative executive mindset yes. of, well, I just want a thing that works that I know will make money. Yeah, but it's less. It's usually less about the brand thing because, like you say, if people care about it, they presumably just want the original. You know, if you if you if you enjoyed Parasite, maybe you're interested in seeing a remake, but probably not. You probably liked Parasite because it's a good film yeah. and you don't want to see it watered down by, you know, an American... Mark by Mark By Mark Wahlberg. Fuck. So, yeah, it's more about having a story that's a proven success. Yeah, I get that. And, and in, in some ways, it's hugely advantageous if, it, if people don't really know about the original film because mm. it's easier to pass off as, like, look, it's, you know, here's this exciting new ideas like sure but don't google it because it will turn out that it was you know uh you know a huge hit in south korea yeah you're totally right tim i think a, a lot of what we'd focus on is this modern ip kind of perspective to it but i think again it kind of boils down to something even more simple than that is it's just the fact that as you said it's a good story that's already proven the hard part of coming up with the idea and the creative bit of it 80% of that is already done. Mm. Very much like kind of what we did with our Robin Hood adaptations, right? Yes. We didn't bother writing scripts or mini pictures yeah. <laughs> or whatever you want to call for that. It's like, here is the cast. It's fucking Robin Hood. It's Robin Hood, but... The main character yeah. will rob from the rich and give to the poor. The Sheriff of Nottingham's the bad person, like blah, 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 blah. It writes itself, basically. Mm. And you have this, like, structure, and we'll get into this when we come around to season 12, because that's been a whole other, you know, thing for us to contend with when it comes to our fucking synopses and us coming up with remakes and all that kind of stuff how much do you change between that but if you've got a structure to it already especially when even even in some of the examples we'll talk about in the second half you already have it based on a book or on an existing property like a graphic novel or something and then you're remaking that thing you can then even do the like oh no, no i'm just i'm just doing a different interpretation of the book like yeah but you're directly referencing the the film version that you already know exists. Like, oh no, I've never seen that. And people will try and like bend their way around that and get around that sort of stuff. But I think that's 
a like yeah it's a proven property and there there's evidence that it can work and b a lot of the legwork is already done in terms of storytelling you know that this process and this structure can be translated into film because somebody's already fucking done it so get a good casting director and you're kind of most of the way there and mm. influence with directing style and all that kind of stuff is obviously a big part of it but even you get something where people do shot for shot remakes and that's a whole other subgenre that we, we will yeah. t- touch upon certainly but specifically with the international stuff i think coming around and being like well we know this works and even on the other side of it there is some prestige there i was like oh it's a french movie mm-hmm. oh Oh, and now I can understand this French movie because it's not all <laughs> clogged with all the French waffle and European nonsense. Now, yeah. now it's filtered to me, the Midwest American. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, it's almost like it makes for a kind of fascinating study of like auteur theory mm. because you Ooh, can yeah. you can take something like the girl with the dragon tattoo, sure, which is an adaptation of a book in the first place. So you have a foundation that it's working from. And then you have a, what is it, Swedish language yep. adaptation? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a Swedish book originally. And then you have an English language adaptation. And so you're seeing how two different directors approach the same story, you know, and it can make for a very interesting comparison, especially when you've got that source material, like you said, where it's. In theory, they're both going back to the original source rather than one simply copying the other. Um, so it can make for this a, a kind of an almost little like film class in in microcosm because you can go back and you can go, oh, okay, like it's interesting that you know this director chose to you know use a lot of steady cam or whatever to to establish this mood and the other one kind of mainly does it with lighting and and with all these kind of things and so in some ways it it can make for a very fascinating study going and watching you know these you know remakes back to back and seeing how people approach the same material yeah it's to my mind it exists well we'll get to this in a second about how it exists on a spectrum but it effectively the script or the book, wherever you're adapting it from, but in this case, if the script itself is like a song, for argument's sake, it's it's down, it's printed. This is how you sing it. This is how you play it. That's it. How an actor interprets that, how a director interprets that, how the cinematographer interprets that, is what you get. Covers of songs. Mm. This, but metal. Changing this, but the instrumentation. Pop. Yeah, changing. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the production changes, but the song is still the thing that got you hooked because the song is well written. Mm. And then you see. How, as you say, that comparing side by side, saying, hmm, I like this nuance, I like this difference. Yeah, but it's the same fucking song. That's why you mm. like it. Um, right. Yeah, but it's Keith Moon playing drums on this one. Yeah, that's the thing. And it's like, yeah, this is why this is the best one, because it's the best fit. And obviously, if you happen to write that script and direct it yourself, which is usually the whole singer-songwriter situation, mm. and it's not like mass-produced or whatever, then yeah, of course, it's going to be the best version of that. Uh, and one you're most associated with. Best example of that is like when you hear songs from like, oh, I know that song, it's by so-and-so. And like, nope, that's a cover from the 60s. Yeah, yeah. The, the amount of that, I think that would also apply to a lot of these films, right? Well, yeah. some of our audience and plenty of other people, the wider movie-going audience will be familiar with the English language version of a film and then be like, hey, that's a remake of a thing. And that happens so often with mm. cover songs and stuff. Mm. We, we were talking about this, weirdly enough, just before we started recording, 
Top Loaders Dancing in the Moonlight. <laughs> That's a cover, by the way. I know a bunch of people outside the UK have probably have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. Good. It was in Umbrella Academy. That bit with the dance and the park and stuff. The worst bit of Umbrella Academy. The, wor- the, worst, yeah. bit, the worst three minutes of Umbrella Academy. That song is a cover. And which, they never had another Americans loved because they'd not had that drilled into their brains. sprayed yeah. at them in the oh early 2000s. Oh my God, 2000s. this is so clever and original. It's like, it's neither. It's a remake slash cover song and it's fucking drilled into our brains for the last 20 years. Yeah. Britons hate it. Bloody now. images of Jamie Oliver patting oh. his belly and sticking an olive in his mouth. <laughs> Segwaying from that. Um, yeah, so I mentioned these things exist on a spectrum. And so you have the very clear, right, I have made, I found this film, I'm going to do an argument saying like, that doesn't exist yet. Uh, the, the, the parasite argument, if you will. Uh, oh, Parasite, what a great movie. We're going to do almost, almost shot for shot, almost exactly the same, same plot, same everything, just set it in fucking New York or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay. And it, it could be something that's actually quite enjoyable. You never know, because again, the story is so fucking good. And if you get performances that work so well, and it, like, say like, oh, Fincher's directing it, like, ah, shit, now I'm actually quite interested. Mm. It's like you're reading one of my picks in the second half. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew. <laughs> but what I mean by that as well is that you also have the other end of the spectrum, which gets to influence and like, hang on, is that in fact a remake? And the, the whole like, wait, what? And people like, you know, fun fact, did you know? X, Y, Z, it's actually a remake of this. And the example I'm going to bring up, which is a very tenuous one, is Star Wars. Star Wars is effectively Hidden Fortress. Yes. And it's like, well, no, that's not a remake. It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's not a remake. But well, it's I... not fucking far <laughs> off. It's the whole, the, to use the song analogy, the drum is the same <laughs> and the harmony is the same. You just added a sort of like, a, a little bit of a different yeah. uh, a guitar track Hid- over it. Hidden Fortress is under pressure and uh, <laughs> Star Wars is Ice Ice Baby. Yeah, it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's different, right? It's different. <laughs> they went da-da-da-da-da-da-da and we go da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> Nailed it, boys. Nailed it, right? Um, but that's the idea. It's like, what you, it's like that's, well, just that's, your semantics, it's influence. It's like, no, because the blueprint's the same. You change enough and we all have examples later which are like, shift genre shift countries mm. and another reason another sort of i don't want to say benefit but one of the reasons people do want to do this international remake mindset is sometimes the we mentioned this in our previous interseason episode film set in tokyo sometimes the shorthand isn't there to explain what the fuck is going on yeah, if you're yeah. Not culturally clued in on what this is about i mean if you're watching the full monty for arguments like yes okay it, it explains everything to you about the situation with the mines being closed and sheffield and all that mm. sort of stuff and you're like i get it because the film has done its it's worked, but there are so many Britishisms in it mm. that it can be a little possibly ostracizing. Even the title is a Britishism. Precisely. Despite the fact that film was made by an American production company. It's an American studio. It's not a British yeah. film, for the record. No. But it's the most British film. Yeah. It's mad. <laughs> and that's kind of the thing. So for then you do that, well, hang on. Shall we do one that's set in Detroit with the fucking car yeah. industry? Shall we do one that's set in a different part of a different continent possibly yeah and it's like yeah oh, oh, i mean <laughs> um i'm gonna find it in a second because i completely forgot the title but there's a remake uh in india of forest gump <laughs> it is fine but it's 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 if anything more wholesome <laughs> yeah um he's he's eaten it's not, a lot more singing a lot more dancing <sighs> he was surprised yeah. um it's rather than him sitting on a park bench he's on a train um, it's like, oh, 
Uh, and obviously, box of chocolates doesn't make sense in India, so it's not that at all. Yeah. But the point is that there are things like, well, that cultural footprint, like, you know, Forrest Gump having influenced all these, you know, huge American moments. Mm. You can't easily transpose that out of it without making huge adjustments. Yeah. What, I think what, it's that scale of remake. Who's the Indian JFK? Like, <sighs> I don't remember now. He's not shooting things up. Yeah. But, the, but the point is that um, th- this happens all over the world all the time because you're mm. trying to make something more appealing to that audience. Yeah. Uh, which unfortunately is a double-edged sword because if people just watched other movies, you would have a broader horizon of stuff, but studios don't care about that because studios aren't making those films. Yeah. So they don't give a fuck. And weirdly enough, this is something I was talking about a few weeks on my other podcast. Uh, I was talking about how when it comes to SEO and content creation online and all this kind of stuff, just translating is often not enough. Oh yeah, because there are nuances, because there are subtleties that will very much be missed when you don't go through the process of full uh, cultural research and localization and all that kind of stuff. And then we've seen this countless times across video games coming over, especially coming over from Japan. Mm-hmm. And this is very common for companies like first marketing in new markets and new countries, being like, "Yeah, great." And Sarah, my guest on the show when I, when I did that episode of Search for Canada was talking about how Renault in the Czech Republic are a laughingstock because they have the diamond shape as their logo. Mm. That is universally the sign for vagina in Czech Republic. <laughs> so their logo is the vagina car. Uh, yeah, so Renault's a car company for people who don't it's know. It's a French car company yeah. with, the di- with a diamond shape as its logo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tiny little things like that are like, oh, fuck, okay, we're going to be called the vagina car forever. Mm. Voxels are all opal. In most of Europe, yes, so, yeah. Mm, yeah. there's a whole thing about that, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. been translated and just not understood. Um, I mean, and that happens with subtitles and stuff. Of course, right? like you get bad. I remember back in the day when I was watching my first anime, Ooh. when you kids won't understand with your fucking Netflixes and your crunchy rolls. <laughs> back in my day, I would just be torrenting something and hoping for the best, and it's hard coded with fan <laughs> translations mm. that are probably wrong. Yep. And I don't know what the fuck is going yeah. on. And that still happens now, much to a lesser extent, because we have such a big industry there of are more legal translations and more. Yeah, there's again, there's money in it now. So now people are incentivized to do it. Now the studios mm. actually have a reason to dub and sub and do all that kind of stuff in terms of localization and translation. Well, Netflix investing so much in, in, in international uh, products yeah. is because there's a market for it. After Squid Game became the most watched thing, it's like, right, fucking find me every K-drama you can get. Bung it on there. We'll call it a Netflix production because then you have to see it through Netflix. It's like, you didn't produce this. Yeah, well, we'll say we did. Uh, Netflix original, Matthew. What more do you want? It just says Netflix original. I mean, I get access to it. You get that. Ba-boom. It starts and that's what you need. (laughs) Skip that bit. Um, I think there's there's an interesting difference um, in international remakes between the ones that completely localize it and the ones that simply go, we're going to tell this exact same story, we're just going to tell it in English. Yeah. Like, I was fascinated to go back to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo when when they announced it, I was like, oh, okay, that would be interesting. So I guess it's going to be like a sort of a, you know, New England... Family and you know be out in you know Maine or somewhere that they're that's isolated. It's like oh no, it's still in Sweden. Yep. 
We just tell it. We just recast <laughs> but, but Daniel it all. Craig's there. But uh, yeah, Daniel Craig's there, Daniel bumbling Craig's do, around, doing no accent, and yeah. Rooney Mara's there doing an accent. You're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, it's Fincher directing, so it'll look good. But yeah, it's exactly the same story, uh, and it's and it's still set in the same place. It's like, why can't he? Like, you're literally at. I mean, you you're not adding nothing because you're getting new performances, and you're you know. Fincher has a certain visual flair and all this kind of stuff, but you're like when a when a remake shifts the country, there has to be some thought put into that localization. Yeah. Um, if you're just telling the same story in the same country, except now you're doing it from an outsider's perspective, whereas previously, you know, most the case with most of these international films are they are made by that per- a person from that country. And then, you know, yeah. when the international remake comes along, it's someone who is not from that country. Weirdly enough, because to give you a bit of an idea, listeners, about the potential of what you could achieve with this, go with the dragon tattoo, as Tim mm. mentioned. Let's go with that example. And this is also because it's fresh in our minds, because this is what we're doing for Equalizers next season. Yeah. Go with the dragon tattoo. Key points, it's about journalism and missing people and Nazis, technically. And my mind immediately said, well, if I'm remaking this movie, what are you going to do? It said it in South America. It's like, oh, hang on. This is very interesting now. And then you, you change things up. It's like, yeah, because mm. you could still have that have and have not. You could have this isolated community of wanker family, mm. just bastards. And you still have that pressing journalism where there are certain South American, South American countries which have been under dictatorship for a very long time. There's obviously the whole uh, thing about a lot of for lack of a better word, expatriate mm. <laughs> um, Nazis being potentially in South America, that sort of stuff. Mm. So there is that yeah. different version you could do with it. Potentially. Or if you are, if you are going, well, no, we need to remake this for an American audience. Americans want to see it. Mm. You go, okay, so maybe having it be, you know, an ex-Nazi yeah. is stretching credulity a little bit. Although you know there were Operation Nazis Paperclip and stuff like that, yeah, plenty, yeah, of, yeah. plenty of things. But you could go then. Okay, so let's make them all Americans. Mm. What atrocities have we committed that are comparable that you know yes. this person could be involved in, and take that route on it? One hundred percent, and that yeah. could be really interesting. Mm. And you could shift the time zone. You could do literally the era could be a different time. It could be it could be the nineteen hundreds, and it's a clan member sort of yeah. family. You could all kinds of things you could do with it, and that's the frustration with remakes, no, because there are. Like, obviously, the majority, as, as Jack mentioned, there are shitty, shitty examples and plenty of them. But, like with sequels, there are some fucking amazing ones. There are some, but where both the original and the remake are fucking astonishingly good. Um, I won't give it too much credit, but there's a film that came out very recently called Living with Bill Nye, um, which is a remake of Ikiru. Um, it's both are an adaptation of a novel, so fair enough. And it takes it from Japan and puts it in 50s London. And again, it's already a really fucking good story. So the remake is obviously going to be incredibly positive. And you say mm. like, well, you know, is it still an adaptation of a remake? It's like, no, because they're still preying on certain visuals. Mm. You still have like most iconic moment being um, sitting on the swing as the snow comes down. That's, that's mm. the, the, the moment, basically, mm. up there. Um, sorry, I just pointed to a poster in a room that people can't see. Nice. Um, <laughs> but basically, um, the idea of you transposing these things, you can still capture capitalize on that you can still mm. do interesting things with it and both of them could be fucking brilliant but 
if your scope is so limited to, ah, I don't care. And it's usually a producer at some point saying, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Mm. Um, and pushing it through. Then you lose all scope of what's possible and end up with the most boring option. And then people end up saying, well, what, what was the point of this? Yeah. What was the point of any of this? Yeah. Um, we can bring up a lot of examples, actually, rather than... Because yeah. you may be thinking to yourself, I don't know. I can't think of any. Yeah. Because there's, a, there's a, a lot of them, but there's a, there's, there's a narrow... Uh, quantity, shall we say? Mm. Um, one in question. Hmm, I'm trying to, to kick off really because there's so many. I think. Well, I think the one I was going to bring up just oh, yeah, now yeah, that is the complete opposite. That is the let's recontextualize this okay. all the way, mm-hmm. and probably the most famous one, maybe. Oh, Seven Samurai into the Magnificent Seven. Yes. Yes. Which is obviously, and obviously we've talked about it before. We did a whole episode on samurai movies. Mm-hmm. The way that influence passed back and forth between America and Japan in regard to samurai movies and westerns and all and of those Kurosawa things. Kurosawa being so influenced by John Ford in the first place. Exactly. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, in a certain way, it makes complete sense. But also, there's so many people out there who I'm sure loved the magnificent seven growing up or or watching it as you know if you're an older person <laughs> um who had no idea that it was a remake and and yeah. had no idea of that heritage to it and the idea that you could say to them yeah but you know it's based on a japanese film would absolutely blow their mind yeah um because to them it feels so inherently american and yeah. the idea that you know How could especially it be- especially when you have two cultures that not you know within living memory of that film being made we're at war yeah we're trying you know we're killing each other we're dropping atom bombs on well one onto the other uh not on each other um but you know the idea that you could take something so american as a western the, the, the almost the quintessential american genre and be like yeah but it's actually based on a japanese film yeah um it's the juxtaposition of these things and the parallels are so close and you're like that can't be right because, as you say, the, xen- the background of the xenophobia and maybe just the, the lack of understanding, if not prejudice, yeah. is the whole, but there's no way we can understand. There's nothing, we have nothing in common. It's like, turns out if people are involved, there's a lot in common. Yes. Hence why Parasite, no one expected it to do well. I mean, that's not entirely true. It's a great mm. film. But the whole logic was like, they didn't know it would test well internationally. It's like, because they see it as a very quintessentially South Korean film. It's like, listen, listen motherfucker. Um, Stories about people being really well off being pieces of shit <laughs> and people not having enough being doing unscrupulous things to get by, that's international. Yeah. That translates to every goddamn culture and country. Yeah, yeah. There's literally quotes of, of Bong Joon Ho saying, like, I didn't think this would do so well because it's such a South Korean yeah. story. And then you watch it and you think, this could be set in London, it could be yeah. set in LA, it could be set it's literally Poland, anywhere, anywhere in the world. Yeah. yeah. You do get those stories that are so specific to their area and then thus take that more effort and more hassle to then correctly mm-hmm. translate. And then, like you said, you sometimes get those lazy ones that are just like, I'll be fine. Just, just don't yeah. chuck a fresh coat of paint on it, it'll be fine, kind of thing. And then actually, oh, if you actually take care and attention and like i said do your cultural research and all that kind of stuff you can make that work and then sometimes you get something again leaning on parasite is the perfect example you're totally right tim 
it's a fucking brilliant masterpiece of a film because it is so universal. That is a big part of why it works so much is because I've never been to Korea. Soon, Matt won't be able to say that. True. But it's such a universal thing. We all, pretty much all of us in like the developed world and even people in the non-developed world understand issues with class and how that relates in big cities and all this kind of stuff and the literal shot choices reinforce basically the whole thing of rich people up on the hill, poor people down the hill, all that kind of stuff. Just little things like that that are even subconscious in your brain transcend language, transcend culture, and have this really powerful just instant reaction of like, yeah, of course, yeah, it's raining, the, the bit in Parasite where it rains and floods and stuff, and they have to come all the way down the stairs to their flooded basement apartment. You're like, of course they're right in the bottom. Yeah, they, yeah obviously. And then, of course, basements, again, without spoiling Parasite, I know it's old, but people will moan. The, the whole basement thing ties into another part of it, and that's another layer that you, no pun intended, that you dig through and, and build there. And I think mm. when you get those really beautifully crafted, masterful stories, you can really, you're often able to translate them through different versions. Again, taking like Magnificent Seven Samurai, all that kind of stuff where you get, well, yeah, they just did a Magnificent Seven again fairly recently. Fucking terrible. Yeah. But you can make that story. And you even see that story repeated outside of film as well. Like an episode of The Mandalorian is basically Seven Samurai, where they go and gather all of the locals and fight off all the mm-hmm. the bad guys coming and stuff. You see that that brief little like concept, almost like funny enough, mini pitch kind of thing like we do. Where it's like, yeah, it boils down to its essential little things of it's a bunch of warriors gathering together to fight off the bandits to save a village. That is Seven Samurai, that is Magnificent Seven, incredibly distilled. And if you take and you're able to boil that story down to its like pure component parts, you can then add your cultural layers and your language layers on top of that as this like icing on the cake kind of thing. Which is important because that's usually how someone sold it to a producer in the first place. So they didn't say, sit down and watch this three hour movie. Yeah. They said, okay, so it's about this, it's about this, it's about this. And I think we can do it like that. Okay, here's some money, go do it. Yeah. Yeah, there are a few cultural events or things basically Mm. that i think are very hard to translate if you have a film that is about one of them Mm -hmm. it's dealing with a very specific topic there are a few and they probably number only in about the dozen yeah that you can't just go we can make this a universal story but for most things because People tend to be people pretty much everywhere. Um, You can take that story and boil it down and go, okay, what's this film about? It's about, you know, these samurai fighting off this village. Okay, what's, but what's it about about? It's like, well, it's about, you know, honor and sacrifice and, uh, you know, sort of uh, what you value and all these kind of things. Like, Mm. oh, okay, well, those are everywhere basic you know. human values <laughs> yeah. that are transcendental yeah. almost and then yeah. and then like you say you then layer the cultural context on top whether that's a case of what is our equivalent of this or you go okay we're going to take those basic themes and the skeleton of the plot but we're going to apply a whole different lens to it and come up with something that feels quite radically different that isn't just a we swapped out you know Japanese village 
for village in Mexico or whatever the mm. you know Magnificent Seven is. Um, sometimes you're you, you're going okay. What if it wasn't a village? What if it's just a supermarket? Oh. You know, and that's that's you know your modern village is like mm-hmm. oh okay right oh, okay you know and 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 rethinking it in that way. But you're still looking at the themes you're still looking at the emotional heart of the film yeah entirely um it, and and that sort of reductionism is how we sort of process this stuff it's also how we sell it to friends sometimes yeah like saying like oh sh- do you want to watch this movie it's like yeah okay uh it's kind of like this it's kind of like die hard but mayan it's like okay you'll be you'll be fine you'll enjoy it. you'll enjoy it that kind of thing um the amount of remakes that are or- those remakes, mm-hmm. other movies that are Die Hard on a blank. Oh yeah, Die Hard in a blank, and you just translate that to a cultural reference thing of like, yeah. oh yeah, it's uh, Die Hard on the tube. Like, oh, that's the British Die Hard. Then is it? It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess so. It's like uh, it's Under Die siege. Hard on a Concord. It's like, oh, it's French. Then. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that translates because Tim's absolutely right with the idea of feeling and the whole human emotions and things like that. One that's very very easy to do. And one we see quite a lot of is horror. Mm. It's fucking ghosts and shit, innit? it? Doesn't matter what it is. It's like, I mean, um, you can rinse through. I mean, thinking of like a handful of these, you're like, oh yeah, you know, there was there was the ring and the grudge and wreck and dark water and that's just you know, Japan. Um, and uh, let me in, let the right one in, that kind of stuff. Because it's like, yeah, because horror's easy. It's, I mean, it's like, well, this one's very clearly about a specificness. Hang on, hang on. Is it about dead fucks? <laughs> <laughs> dead fucks be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the What We Watched recently episode mm. uh, that just went up for patrons, um, I discuss a film that I essentially boils down to, you know, the, 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 the most reductionist explanation of it is Predator, but for West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that deals with some very specific... Um, sort of West African folklore and history and stuff like that. But equally, you could easily lift those elements out and swap it and go like, okay, now we're going to make it, you know, a a, a weird Celtic curse and we're going to set it in Wales. Mm. Like, yeah, it works. It works. Yeah. And and that's so easy to transpose. And because people... (sighs) Horror is sold to you on sound design. Not necessarily what people are fucking saying, <laughs> um, or the language they're saying in people being scared and go ah and screaming and shit. It's like, yeah, we can do this. Easy. Let's get on with it. When you get the the nuance of like a political drama, it's like that definitely translates. But we have to put a bit more elbow work into it. We have to actually figure out how we can yeah. make this translate to something. Uh, like um, there's a film called uh, Ar- Argentina 1985. Mm. Now, obviously, that's real events, and it's a you know a, a, um, a biopic to a degree. But if you wanted, you could still take that format and kind of play around with it and to put it to mm. another country, maybe. Be fiddly, yeah. we could do it. Um, I'm going to whip through some other ones just to get people's uh, imaginations going. Yeah. Um, some weird examples. So, Vanilla Sky and Open Your Eyes. Open Your Eyes or Abrelois being the first one. Mm. And Vanilla Sky being the second one, which has one of the cast members returning. Yes. Yeah, that's sometimes a thing, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's the thing. Sometimes you're like, we want to keep this bit. And that one. It's like, <laughs> why? Don't know. That one stays. It's like, okay. That one had a breakout role a few years back and, you know, we're yeah. remaking this 10 years down the line, but 
Now she's a star. Might as well cast her. It's like, okay. Um, and that one, again, both versions are fine. I think that, that's, that, that works reasonably well. Um, one's obviously better than the other. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, really not good. We have uh, Old Boy, um, the Park Chanuk film, which is goddamn amazing. We love it to pieces. Well, we've, I have specifically have talked about it multiple times on this show. <laughs> Very true. I fucking love that yeah. movie and have been thoroughly traumatized by that and movie. And what's so surreal is... I love Spike Lee. It's so weird that it's a Spike Lee movie. It's so weird that it's a Spike Lee movie. I, I, we've highlighted um, a lot of his films over the years and talked about some of his stuff. Mm. And he's always saying something so interesting and important and profound and very personal to him. Yeah. And then he did Old Boy with Josh yeah. Brolin. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what's happening did here? Did you just need another floor in your house, Spike? Like, what's going on here? And it's, it's frustrating because... Again, quintessentially, very importantly, uh, early 2000s career defined how mm. Korea ended up viewing itself. Lots of identity politics going on there. Really fucked up shit. It can absolutely work in any other country. You could set it in some dingy bit of Paris and it works perfectly. You know, the people exploiting others. It's, it works fine. Um, <sighs> Brolin's a choice. I... Brolin's not a terrible choice. He's not like, terrible. There, there, no. there are much worse actors you could have picked. Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Mark bloody Wahlberg is the answer to that. Yeah. Chris O'Donnell. Um, or are you going to go Chris Pratt for a second? Any of the many Chris's I chose any O'Donnell. Of the, any of the Chris's. Yeah. No, but basically... O'Donnell's the worst. Uh, yeah. Pratt still exists. Um, so basically, um, it, it's, it's just weird because it, it, it's one of those examples of a film that it's so pointless. It's so weird. I can't... Because I remember hearing it being a thing, like being announced and stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm like, huh, I, I guess. Yeah. I guess you could do that. I guess you could change it and like make it American for some reason. Because again, like, oh boy, I think that if you really, really boil down like story of revenge, guy has been imprisoned, doesn't know why for 18 years or whatever mm. it is. And it, yeah, has to figure out why. Has to figure out why. That is the incredibly boiled down story. That is the kind of story that can be told in an infinite amount of ways mm. in an infinite amount of settings. And it's a Japanese manga. So Exactly, yeah. Mm. It's a Korean film based on a Japanese manga that then I just don't understand and how also, it's so boring. When you give it that pitch and say, and Spike Lee's directing right? it, you go... Well, that's going to be weird and interesting. It's going to be weird and interesting. Is, yeah. Also, why are there white people in this like it makes so much sense to make it an african-american story 1, in that thousand percent yes and it's like why yeah it's like what, what are we saying with this and again we're not saying spike lee can only direct films with strong prominent african-american roles but it's like yeah but he's so fucking good at it i was gonna say yeah he has the voice to do it yeah being an african-american yes. guy himself like, yeah if anyone's gonna do it fucking spike lee's yeah. the guy weird so there's that for example then you have another end of the another example another key one and i'm gonna get some flack so we talk about how there are only a handful of things that you cannot, cannot translate. And things are like, oh, that's a very distinct, uh, singular experience. Mm. Godzilla. Mm. You motherfucker. Godzilla um, is so Japanese. Yeah. It is inseparably it's Japanese. An inherently Japanese story yeah. based on the history of that country and what they've been through. Precisely. 
Now, 1998. <laughs> also, <laughs> Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick is kind of like a nuclear weapon if you think about it. <laughs> That's a lot of fish. <laughs> so basically, uh, for those who don't know, um, oof, sorry, they remade Godzilla and people are very unhappy with it because they try... Uh, Emmerich, a, a German, directed it and oh, yeah, did, did a very interesting thing with it. And it's like, okay, well, we know it's not... Nothing God- about that film is very interesting, Very Matthew. interesting. Apart from the soundtrack. Very interesting. No, and uh, it, it was a sense of like, well, we can't... We're not going to have the same mess of metaphor and message and things. So we'll talk about French Polynesian bombs going off. It's like, mm. uh-huh. That's contemporary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that sure. Um, that's also America. Let, fine. Because Americans set off those fucking nukes. Are we not going to talk about that? No, 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 no. I don't think so. I, re- I remember being like a kid and getting a, 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 a sticker, at, I think, at the uh, like Norfolk Fair or mm-hmm. something wow. like that. There was like a big nuke going off and non written on it. <laughs> <laughs> not really understanding what was going on. But you're like, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Um, so this film comes out and it's like, well, we're not going to do Godzilla that way. We'll do it like, oh, there are iguanas in the area. They would have been blown to this immense <laughs> radiated proportions and you're like it's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles right but it's iguanas and they're all big yeah Godzilla 2 Secret of the Ooze <laughs> I mean kind of yeah a little with bit. all the fucking eggs and stuff and the thing is and Jamiroquai most importantly slide all over the place deeper underground <laughs> but the point is that that's kind of the stuff you go that makes for an interesting remake that's the kind of you want right it's localised a little bit it's different and it's saying its own thing problem was it wasn't necessarily good that's a lot of fish <laughs> and then because Jurassic Park came out they were like we have to have little ones with the little raptors I just ignored Jack doing that yeah. <laughs> you did well to, you did I well I looked him straight in the face <laughs> I was um, literally for the listener out there air basing and he humming was. into the microphone he was and it was good. He slapped a bass. We <laughs> Paul Rudd. Um, so yeah, and that, that's one thing. Like, so there are times where you think, oh, we can localize it. We can make our own version. And people go, no, mm. we like the original. We were expecting the mm. original. And I think it's very telling that Godzilla is so d- does not exist without the atomic bomb being dropped on yeah. Nagasaki yeah. and Hiroshima. And then if you w- look at the 2014 Godzilla, oh yeah, it is so clearly a post 9/11 film. Yeah, 100. percent But it's, yeah. al- it's also post 9/11 and post 2004 tsunami, where because mm. of the Fukushima power plant stuff, it's like, yep, we're gonna have to do this whole idea about uh, earthquakes and disasters and natural things yeah. and climate change. But then when we get to the city stuff, it's like, yep, 9/11 world. Yeah. Um. So it is. It is a very different experience rather than like, let's go to New York and blow up all the buildings. And like, yeah. maybe don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to rip off just a few very quickly, because um, there are just a few examples. There's a French film called Three Men in a Cradle. <laughs> it's like, what about three men taking care of a baby? Mm. That's not possible. Well, that that touches on something interesting, because there's mm. another famous French one as well. Mm-hmm. And we talked about things that don't necessarily translate. I think humour is probably the hardest one. That's Ooh. it. And you will yeah. notice that there are not a lot of comedies on this list. Not they are that work at least. Yeah, not that not not a lot that work at least. Um, and like the other kind of big famous one is the Birdcage, which was mm. almost my pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, which again, Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, you're like mm. coming up heavy with this one, but also yeah. it's telling something very distinct about homophobia and all kinds of things with the yeah. American culture as well, because that that's parallels there. Yeah, 
but yeah, I think it's it's very telling that comedy doesn't tend to get remade as much. It doesn't. And also you tend to see comedies struggle because, uh, case in point, those two films, The Birdcage and Three Men and a Baby, hopefully in terms of progress of society, but let's face it, probably not, should also have a shelf life. Yes. Three Men and a Baby is funny in the 90s because men looking after a baby, Tom Selleck, he couldn't <laughs> do, t- and Ted Danson's in the mix. Next you'll tell me there's fucking a Gutenberg. Who's directing this madness? My Nimoy. God. <laughs> Nimoy. Um, and it's like, this is insulting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, to t- current sensibilities. Because... Um, you know, the, the modern ideas. I mean, Kramer versus Kramer when it first came out. I know this is not a remake, but you know, the idea of Kramer versus Kramer is supposed to be the idea of like, how dare women think that they can raise a child? <laughs> a man is very important in my imagine if a man had to raise a child on his own and fought for that child. And that man was Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> it's like, okay. I'll just put hook on again. <laughs> um, but there's that the idea, like, you know, it's like, yeah, that that's not that unusual. That's a sitcom premise at best. Yeah. Um, and the idea of, of uh, the birdcage being like, um, this guy is going to get married. He brings over his new fiance and he wants, you know, his parents to meet their parents, except his parents are two gay dudes who run a, uh, a big sort of burlesque. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A sort of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I slipped out of my head. RuPaul. Drag. Drag club. Yeah. Um, and cabaret sort of stuff going on. It's like, yeah, and, th- and this guy that the, is the father-in-law to be is a staunch Republican senator. And like, mm. fuck. Um, and how do I get around this, basically? Yeah. And it's really funny and it's really well done and it's, mm. really, and it's done with the right humour and the right cast. Mm. But it's, again, so easy. That could have gone so fucking flat. That could so easily have been a terrible Hateful Adam, piece of shit. Adam Sandler, yeah. Kevin oh, James. Oh, God. Chuck and Larry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so there's those sort of things that don't translate. Um, oh, Taxi is another weird one as well. Taxi's a very, very good French movie. And then there's another one with, uh, is it Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon, Fallon and Queen Latifah? Yeah, fucking hell. That anger. And some of the weirdest stunt work I think I've ever seen. Yeah. That's just agreed, like unnecessary stuff. I don't know how I would else explain it apart from unnecessary stunt work of mm. Jimmy Fallon between two cars and then having to like, do a push-up so a motorbike can go underneath him. Like It's shit Jackie Chan. But Jimmy Fallon is not the man for the job. It's <laughs> fucking mental. I mean, you could say that about any job that Jimmy Fallon has. Correct. I yes. agree. Yeah. Even talk show hosting. Fucking awful everything. Irritating twat. You couldn't really cut SNL. Keeps laughing at the camera. I, th- I think there are moments so where... go back to ruffling Donald Trump's hair, you patronizing ah, wanker. Piece of shit. Um, but yeah, what a weird choice. Two more I want to bring up, and then we'll, we'll close off this first half, I think. One is where you go, the classic, like, wait, that's a fucking remake? Uh-oh. Uh Profumo di Donna, Scent of a Woman. Oh, yeah. Hoo-ha! 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 Jack, do a hoo-ha. Hoo-ha. That's it. Um, <laughs> so Scent of a Woman is the film that Al Pacino won his only Oscar for. Yes. Yeah. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Academy. Um, but that, anyway. That is where hoo-ha comes from, isn't it? Is it that movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah literally. Yeah, he's just sitting there staring off in the distance going, oh, yeah. And everyone said, when did Dal Pacino change from being 
hello. Yeah. <laughs> to, hello. She's got a great ass. <laughs> a great ass. <laughs> anyway, that's a remake of an Italian movie because of course it fucking is. Yeah. When you say, Hua! You think, yeah, I can hear an Italian do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, an Italian. Yeah. Al Pacino. And then the other one I want to bring up because it's another thing we kind of forget. We talk about like the full Monty as a touch on point. The Italian Job. A very British film. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there's in a very American remake. So I'm, I can't remember who it was, but the quote I always remember about the Jason Statham, I want to say 2004, something like that, early, mid 2000s. Yeah. Later than that. I think it's probably that. about 2008. I hate, I I Let's hate. do the maths, boys. I hate that. The I Italian might, might have even been job. Mark Kermode that was talking about it. Uh, it was 1969 for oh, the original. Oh, damn it. And 2003 for Fucking the Three. Holy go. crap. Yeah. It was around then. And who was the lead in it? Why, it's Mark Wahlberg. Yep. Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg, Ed Norton. Jason Statham, Charles Theron. Yeah. Yep. Donald Sutherland. I think it might have even been out. Mark Kermode that talked about it. Yeah. And he said, nothing about this film is Italian, and technically they're not doing a job. So it's just <laughs> the... <laughs> it is not Italian. It's not a job. No. It's just the. And I have never been able to get that out of my head for nearly 20 fucking years at this yep. point. Because if you just did a random it's it's kind of a fast and furious, basically. Oh god, it is. Yeah. I mean it's it's post fast one, right? Yes. And yes. it's in that era of like but it oh also, yeah, we need to make the car movies. It fits the model of the latter Fast and Furious films more than the first one. Yeah, yeah. So that's about the, They're it, not just stealing car stereos no, and stuff. But it still feels like a heightened, like, oh my God, we got all the history and family. And also Charlie Theron's there and Jason Statham. <laughs> but the point is that, because that, we forget the whole like remake of international films, that includes films in the language already, because there are still cultural touch points of Australia mm-hmm. and Canada and uh, Britain and other places speak English language yeah. first. And it's like, yeah, Americans aren't going to listen to that bullshit. The amount, the amount of times this happened, specifically with TV shows, Oh, where yeah. the British Christ. version is remade into an American thing. The Office probably being the most successful example of yes. like yes. a weird thing where the British Office didn't run for very long at all. And the American Office basically remade those and everybody was like, this is a bit weird. And then went off and became its own thing. Yeah. And was incredibly successful and critically acclaimed for like yeah. 15 more seasons after I, that. I think the British Office is like 12 episodes. Yes. Yeah. And Christmas think, special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the American one they had the first season was like where it has more seasons than the British yeah. one does have episodes. I think mm. Steve, I, I, I must, admit, I haven't seen the American Office. So I don't give a shit. Neither have I. But basically, the uh, I know the original season of the American Office has Steve Carell's character being like Ricky Gervais' character, yeah, a prick. Yes. The first, the first few episodes are like literally the remake, literally, remake. literally yeah, yeah, script, same script. Yeah, and then there's a point where he gets up and makes a speech or does some karaoke or mm. does something, and the room starts tearing him apart. But the people who work with him start saying, hey, he's one of us. It's like mm. a very American style, like, this is New York. <laughs> <laughs> you mess with one of us, you, you mess, mess with, with all, all of us. Dunder Mifflin. Um, but the point is that it's like, then it changed. And then it's like, he's got a slight nice air yes. and, then, and yeah, it changes yeah. the whole thing a little bit and yeah. it becomes its own it's thing. It's not as caustic as the British one. No, because we like Sur- to suffer. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Cri- yeah. Cringe and suffering is yeah. what we like to, to endure. Um, but then equally, things like, uh, cheap, uh, like what we do in the shadows, Australian or New mm. Zealand technically film. Yep. Sorry, New Zealanders. Um, New Zealand film, uh, and now an American TV series populated by British actors. Yes. Yeah. Still written by a New Zealander. It's like, uh, aha! 
Huh? Yeah. Yeah. The sweet spot, right, guys? I mean, to be fair, film is great and the show is also great. I think think the show is much better. I agree. I like like the film a lot, but the the show is so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. We should probably highlight some specific individual Mm. cases, I think. We should dive into the second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and get a free month of Audible's fantastic service, as well as a free audiobook, courtesy of us, the Sequelizers. If you didn't already know, somehow you don't know what Audible is, but you're listening to us already, you can listen to us on Audible, but it also has literally hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, guided meditations, comedy specials, and basically everything under the audio sun. You can listen to all your usual podcasts there. They even have Audible exclusive podcasts, Audible original productions of audiobooks, loads of lovely stuff that you're going to listen at Audible. And like I said, if you go to audibletrial.com slash sequel, you can get a free audiobook. And I'm going to recommend one of my picks from the second half. Here's a little mm-hmm. teaser for your listeners. Oh, oh, oh. Because we mentioned earlier... Was it the Polar Express? <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear the bell ring there. It's because you're dead. Uh, it's a uh, jolly green giant. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mentioned earlier on in the episode, we talked about it in general, the some remakes that are based on books, and then they remake the thing that's also based on the same book. So I want to talk about the book, Solaris, by Stanislav Lem. It's a fantastic historic piece of science fiction that has not one, but two of the moving pictures based upon it, of which I'm going to be talking about in the second half. So if you want to get brushed up and experience the original version of Solaris before you go out and watch the movie versions of Solaris, by the way, both of which I will recommend in slightly different ways, coming up in a few minutes, go and check it out. I have read this book. It is fantastic. I like diving back into the history of science fiction and all that kind of stuff and going back to the old Arthur Z. Clarke stuff and all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of 60s kind of era of all that good stuff mm. in terms of science fiction, that classic era what, of science fiction. What we now fiction. consider retrofuturism. Yes, it is retrofuturism, very much so. So yeah, you can get a copy of Solaris by Stanislav Lem or any audiobook of your choice by going to audibletrial.com slash sequel so i'm going to kick things off and for mm-hmm. those of you on the public feed you just heard me in the ad the audible ad that we do talking about my pick for this because i'm talking about a thing that is based on a book and then a remake of that film that's also based on the same book i want to talk about some solaris because oh. i fucking love me some solaris some some not uh, all four hours. Not all four hours. It's fucking long. The, the, the 70s version, long as fuck. So, to give you some context, 1972, all the way back, is a Russian film directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. You, if you're aware of Russian cinema, you've probably heard of Andrei Tarkovsky. Maybe the most famous Russian I, I director say, he ever. He is the Russian director. Yeah, pretty arguably, much. Yeah. Pretty much. And then remade in 2002 by Steven Soderbergh, which is a weird combination of sentences that I just said. It's Spike Lee making old boy. It's like, yeah. Soderbergh, what are you doing? It's real, it really is one of those like, huh, 
when you think of Soderbergh, you have such a clear, and we talked about Soderbergh not too long ago, thinking about people that have like a really interesting career and have this clear vision and all this kind of stuff. And then why are you doing Solaris? So what a weird choice. And I think the 70s version, I know this is very much matches what the original author, Stanislav Lem, feels about it. Him coming from, he's a Polish author, by the way, written by a Polish guy uh, in the 60s and then made into a film in the 70s and then again in 2002. So that's kind of the timescale we're looking at. 30 years apart are the two remakes, are the other two movies, one of them being the remake. And Lem much prefers the 70s version because it adheres much more closely to the kind of harder science fiction-y kind of stuff that happens in the book. Mm. It's very much in the same ilk as 2001 A Space Odyssey. So if you've seen and liked 2001, but have never gone and watched the 1972 Solaris, I can very much recommend it as almost like a sister piece. It like the the boiling down of that kind of era of sci-fi is like in the west we had 2001, in the east they had Solaris. Like like that was the this oversimplification of that kind of thing where it is that culturally impactful. It is yeah, universally critically acclaimed as one of the great science fiction masterpieces, one of the great most influential pieces of science fiction writing that then was made into this very interesting, incredibly fucking long <laughs> contemplative movie that is it is very much along the similar lines of this whole like existential crisis, super philosophical kind of thing that you kind of can come at from 2001. And 2001 was literally a few years earlier than this in the late 60s. It's also classic space race stuff where it was Russia, well, Soviet Union... And United States of America was yeah. the first, and cinema was going. I guess we'll have a piece of that too. Yeah, you know, it's like what are we doing? Intellectual properties and also really highbrow, thought-provoking pieces, rather than just what would they to become Star Wars and that kind of stuff. Yeah, to put it into perspective, in terms of runtime as well, I'll kind of talk about the differences, and this is something we'll come around to when we talk about requires, and this is something we've been discussing as a group: is how are we going to differentiate these remakes? Because our usual plot synopses are going to be like. It's the same thing, but it's an American version instead of a Russian version or whatever. Like A lot of these remakes are, as we were saying earlier, when you boil them down, they're essentially the same plot. But actually, there's quite a bit of difference just in runtime and the kind of central themes that run through these two movies. So, 166 minutes for a 1972 movie, and 70s movies are slow. <laughs> so it's fucking slow and long I'll tell you that much for free It's the length of a No Time to Die Or a little bit shorter than The Batman For yeah. context Yes, exactly Just shy of three fucking hours long On the almost exact polar opposite end Just over an hour and a half Is the George Clooney starring version from mm. 2002 And Soderbergh doesn't make long movies Soderbergh does not make long That's movies That's half of The Batman <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it, pretty much, yeah it's a half of a Lord of a Ring. And it's a really interesting thing because of the central themes that it explores, the things that they choose to focus on. Because it is essentially a similar kind of story around the whole thing just set on a space station. Surprise, surprise, it's 60s, 70s sci-fi going to be set on a space station. <laughs> and uh, where we'll all be by the year 1998. The distant <laughs> future of 1998 or 2001. 
And the fact that they take can take the same story and explore it in two completely different ways. And I remember like reading up and, and looking at like, oh, Soderbergh hadn't seen the 72 original, the original, the first film version, the Russian version, when he made the 2002 version. And it was like, mm, okay, interesting. And I know some people do that on purpose. You don't want to be influenced by the original. You want to have your own you know, original take on it and unique stamp on it and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that the Tarkovsky version really takes a deep dive into the existentialism of that kind of science fiction. What does it mean to be human? It's all about, you meant like the phrase retrofuturism earlier, Matthew, like yeah. talking about the 70s looking forward and what does it mean for us to be living in space and how does that all work and how does it affect the human psyche? Like, even coming through things that influence like Sunshine a few years this is further mm. into the 2000s and stuff like that. And I was recently rewatched and was talking on Twitter about how much I love Event Horizon and stuff. That's way more in your face and way more like horror focused and stuff like that. But the message is kind of similar in we're fucking around with technology we don't understand mm. and man is paying the price psychologically, essentially. And then the 2002 version is way more of a character study. It's so much more focused on the connection and the emotions behind it rather than the actual kind of like philosophical questions. The The 72 original is way colder and more brutalistic and Russian. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. And well, it's a different era as well as a different uh, country. country. All yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Consider. The fact that it's 30 years later, obviously being made by Americans, starring George Clooney and Viola Davis and, you know, other American actors and things like that, it is such a, it's a very American movie in the way that it handles a lot of its emotion. It really wears its heart on its sleeve and it does tackle the kind of like, what does it mean to be human kind of things? Because, um, seeing like hallucinations and trying to understand like, are they hallucinations? The the effect that the planet they're orbiting and this space station is potentially having this literal effect on their psyche. Is it projections? Is it them just going mad? All this kind of stuff. Those questions are still there, but it's way more inside of the, the main character, Dr. Kelvin's brain and inside his thoughts and stuff like that. The, the Tarkovsky version feels literally more distant like the camera is further away from so many other characters there are way fewer close-ups until there are real fucking close-ups in like 2001 style where it is just eyes barely lit like shadows across the face all that kind of stuff invasive invasive exactly yeah and you get these shots that are very almost like alien-esque where you just get an empty corridor in this fucking desolate creepy space station compared to Moments of human connection, sex, kissing, love, all this kind of stuff. Like, there's an intimacy in the 2002 version that is almost like purposefully absent in the 72 version. And I find the two explorations of essentially the same story so interesting. I enjoy both films, but me coming from a big, like, sci fi history nerd kind of thing, I really, really love the 72 version. I definitely recommend you've got a spare three hours. Go and go and check out Tarkovsky's <laughs> version because I think it is one of those like early science fiction masterpieces that once you go back and watch very much like 2001, if you've watched sci-fi films since then, you'll be like, 
oh, I recognize that. Oh, that influenced that. So that's where that shot comes from. Yeah. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's been such an influential thing on sci-fi since then. I really think it's worth revisiting now. And give the 2002 version a go as well. I think it's an interesting movie in and of its own right. I don't like it as much, but I think they are both very interesting explorations of the same story to tell it in a very different way. Tim, coming over to you for your first pick. Yeah, uh, I am going to go for two films that are pretty close to each other uh, in terms of original and remake. Mm-hmm. Um, and also very close, uh, n- not at all like Solaris in terms of when they were made, because these were films that were made in 2007 and 2010. Mm. So only three years apart. This was very much a a producer saw this and went, we'll have that. Buy the rights. Yeah. Put some, put some English-speaking people in it. I bought the DVD. I own it. Yeah. That's how that guy with Jodorowsky's Dune. He's like, I, yeah. bought the, <laughs> I bought the book. Therefore, I was like, no. Yeah. So yeah, the films that I'm talking about are um, Hachov, uh, aka The Debt, and The Debt. Mm. Um, Hachov is a uh, Israeli thriller uh, directed by Asaf Bernstein um, and starring uh, Gila Almagor, uh, Yuri Cheparov, and Oleg Drak. And then The Debt uh, was directed by John Madden, not the football guy, the guy who directed Shakespeare in Love. Just burst the cinema screen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it stars uh, Helen Mirren, Tom Wilkinson, uh, Jessica Chastain in one of her quite earliest roles, pretty much. Yes. Uh, Sam Worthington um, and a few other people. If you're thinking to yourself, shit, that sounds really cool. Mm. Why haven't I heard of The Debt? Tim will explain. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it didn't. It didn't perform hugely well. I, I don't want to steal this from Tim too mm. much at all, so I won't, I won't traipse in here. Mm. Um, but again, an Israeli thriller is a very um, specific thing. Yeah, it's a specific setting, specific story. Uh, I, I think the most. Oh, that's a weird thing to say. I think the most widely spread story of that elk people might have seen is Munich, for argument's sake. Yes. Um, obviously, a, a Spielberg movie. Yeah. And not an international remake. It's an yeah. event, a biopic, as it were. Um, the debt, however, it's like, okay, and as Tim said, it's like, it goes very close to the wire. It's like, mm. what are you doing? Same thing, different yeah. actors. Like, oh. Oh, okay. Yes, because... Both of these films are about an Israeli Mossad team uh, in the 60s who attempt to capture a a Nazi war criminal uh, in East Germany. And then those same characters in modern day uh, essentially dealing with the fallout of the fact that the mission went poorly. And so you have... Jessica Chastain, for example, plays the young version of the character. Helen Mirren plays the older version of the character. And that's the same in both films. The structure of the films is very similar. Um, There are certain twists that are held back in the English language version that Hachov 
deals with a lot earlier. Um, and I hope I'm not mangling that pronunciation for any Hebrew speaking uh, listeners that we might have. Um, I know we have a view. Yeah. Hahov did pretty well in Israel. You know, it won uh, some or was nominated for some Israeli Academy Awards or whatever, the, you know, their equivalent. equivalent of the Oscars. Mm. Um, but it didn't exactly kind of break out. It wasn't, it wasn't like a parasite or anything like that. When I discussed earlier that there are certain things, cultural moments that do not translate, I think the Holocaust counts as one of those there is no real equivalent mm -hmm. you know and i know not to talk about something quite spurious but they often is discussion uh when we talk about oh we're going to bring the x-men into the mcu are we still going to have magneto be a holocaust survivor because you know he would be incredibly old at this point is there an equivalent thing that we can make him and not at the same no, scale. Not at the same scale. That is a, a tragedy and a horrific act of genocide yeah. that we thankfully have not seen repeated yeah. on that same scale. There are human atrocities everywhere. Yeah. All the time. And they are fucking appalling. Yeah. But the Holocaust hits uh, very quickly. I, again, I'm sorry to jump in again. Mm. Um, in our most recent um <laughs> Patreon bonus episode of what we watched recently. I watched the film You People. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> with uh, uh, Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy. And one of the jokes in the movie is the two families, one being a Jewish family, one being an African-American family, equating the Holocaust and the slave trade. Mm. And it's the uncomfortable discussion. Obviously, I'm not going to get into that point, but the, there is that whole like, oh, it's kind of the same. It's like, no, it's not. And even then it's like, no... These two things are very, very different. Yeah. Very awful, very personal, very um, defining for mm. huge swathes of people. But trying to find an equivalent for film purposes, anything you come up with is going to insult somebody. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I totally understand why they didn't, as we said in the first half, find some other cultural context that it works. Because it just, it just wouldn't. You know? Sure, sure. Um, and there's... But it is very interesting, the changes that are made and the different angle that is taken in the American remake, because the American remake becomes a lot more about personal consequences and personal relationships. Um, a little bit like Solaris in the fact that the Soderbergh version is a lot more about being inside the characters' heads, mm. whereas the Israeli version is a lot more to do with national identity and responsibility and tackling those ideas of, you know, what Israel was facing in those years after the war and, you know, the, 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 the characters and the, the kind of the, the state as a whole in the 60s where, where the film is kind of set, it is still... Very, I mean, we're still in living memory of the Holocaust at the moment, but then it was only thirty years gone. You know, it was yeah. the the characters. They they in both films they make a point about how these characters are very young. Um, in the film, like, um, they're sort of in their late twenties, mid twenties. Like Jessica Ch Chastain's character is meant to be twenty five. It's like her first field mission, um, and stuff like that. 
And so these are characters who they don't personally remember. You know, they didn't experience it, but their parents did. They'd have been toddlers or very young children during the events in question. And and they have grown up in a generation that is just one step removed from that atrocity that would have such a defining effect Mm. on them. And, you know, that is very different from where a someone who's 20 in modern Israel mm. is going to feel. It's still going to have this huge cultural weight, mm. but once you're two or three generations removed, it has does not have that same immediacy. It's very, very strange, but it's the same sort of comparison. The boomers, mm. uh, by definition of what they are, <laughs> yeah. the baby boom after the war, have a real affinity and connection to World War II in America and Britain and mm. other countries like that. Because it's their parents and their sacrifice and their thing and what they grew up with. Yeah. They don't have experience of themselves. They talk about they fucking won it themselves or, or, or suffered it themselves. But because they grew up with such a, the shadow of it, mm-hmm. it's coloured their entire existence. Yeah, exactly. And so Hahov takes that and looks at it through a kind of blows it up to a national level of like, this is what mm. our country was dealing with at this point. This is where we are today, and these are some of the questions that we have to ask ourselves of how far we have come as a nation, whereas mm. the, the, the American version of the debt is a lot more about what the characters are dealing with themselves. It doesn't try and turn it into a larger metaphor, which really is appropriate because it's no longer an Israeli film. It's no longer an Israeli director actors etc etc in fact yeah. it was screenwritten by matthew vaughan uh who was you know directing x-men first class around this mm, time yeah. yep. um uh, along with jane goldman who he works with frequently as a, who's a screenwriter collaborator with him and also jonathan ross's yeah. Yeah. wife mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. um so no one no one involved in it has any really you know there were a couple of israeli actors in it but for the most part it's an entirely British American production, which gets into the realm of condescending, yes, uh, dictating how a country should act rather than how are we acting as a self reflection, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, taking that step back is a very wise choice, I think. But I think both films function well enough. Um, I think they both, you know, there, there are moments in which they're incredibly similar, some of the sort of moments of tension and stuff um the american remake has a higher budget of course um and so it's got a few more action scenes and and beats and stuff like that and also because it has more of that emphasis on the personal relationships it plays up i wouldn't say the melodrama but certainly the drama and the sort of romantic entanglements and stuff like that um at the end of the day, I think they're both good films. I think that's all right, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's fine. It's fine, yeah. 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 It's worth a watch. It's a three out of five. Exactly. But I do think it is, because they are so similar, the ways in which they are different is fascinating. Matthew, round to you for your first pick. Um, so similar, similarly to yourselves, because to a degree, obviously, we're talking about older films for these ones or, or older states of existence whereby it's like, okay, well, you know, Israel is 
very much defined by the events of World War II. Of course it is. It's formation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, contemporarily speaking. And obviously Solaris, you've got the Iron Curtain and everything going on there, for example, sake, and the, the, the dictator of World War II, all the things coming out of that, for example, and how the story is very cold, different for that reasons. Um, and how do you change these things with new versions? How do you approach this stuff? What angle do you put in? And both of you have a similar thing with your ones where it's like the American, British, or wherever the production happened to be says, let's lean into the personal emotional side of it and push the love angle. Let's push the personal side because that's something we can relate to that doesn't make it come off too negatively. Uh, mine's the same, except the first one already had a really strong personal emotional connection. So I went, oh, let's jettison every fucking thing. <laughs> the film's in question. I'm going to describe for you the original because I think the original is fantastic. In fact, there's a couple of classic quotes, which is that the original is one of the greatest movies of the 80s mm. that people don't know about. So it's a Wim Wenders film from Germany uh, called Wings of Desire, or technically Der Himmel über Berlin, which is a bit of play on words because Himmel means sky and heaven. And it's a very sort of surreal black and white kind of fantasy in a way, a bit of romantic fantasy from 1987. Key thing here, Berlin, 1987. So obviously this is about the wall. Kind of. Um, at this point, the Berlin Wall had not come down, but it was fucking close. You could yeah. tell the end was near. This was happening. Hasselhoff was on his way. He was doing God's work, <laughs> son. <laughs> Singing his ass off. Um, and the film stars Bruno Gantz, who is a Swiss actor. Um, his probably you, most, you love. I fucking love Bruno Gantz. He's amazing. And dead. Bruno Gantz, the people probably know him almost exclusively as Hitler. Um, specifically in the downfall of the Untergang, um, which uh, got parodied when in the, in the earlier days of the internet, shall we say, of 2010s, I want to say 2000s, um, when it was like... That's not the early days of the internet, Matthew. For a lot of people listening, it fucking uh, is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, I was there at its birth, but I mean, yes. The point is that... Um, there was the thing where they took the clip and you re-subtitled it. Yeah. Fucking amazing movie, amazing performance. But, you know, parodied. And he's an actor in that. He's very good. This film, however, is different. This film is about angels. As in, not eyes circling in this giant thing with wings. <laughs> humanity. Not biblically accurate. accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, literally just angels uh, in... Now there's in... a remake. Yeah, <laughs> fucking oh. hell. Especially considering the actor we got coming up, uh, you know, in the remake. Um, so, uh, Bruno Gantz plays this uh, angel, and he is watching over the citizens of of Berlin with his friends. And you see them in these long black trench coats, just observing. Mm. And there are people, what you know, and it's life in 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 West Berlin specifically. Um, and so you see literally like prostitution and people going hungry and people just trying to get on with their work and understand their place in society. There's a film being made, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, because uh, Peter Falk, it, as in <laughs> Columbo, is there, and he's researching a role he's playing, and it's actually him, Peter Falk, playing <laughs> Peter Falk. And like, in this German movie, he just comes in and he's still talking <laughs> with his accent. And it's like, okay. <laughs> anyway. 
So, uh, yes, uh, Bruno Gans plays the role of Damiel, this angel. And he gets a little distracted. He starts following a specific trapeze artist lady he kind of likes. The and he finds them interesting as humans and things. And he has a, a friend called Cassiel, and they just have conversations. And then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down there and be human. It's like, mm, no, you're fucking not. We don't do that. It's like, look, I'm going to do it. I know some people do it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about doing it. I will, I will make myself seen to them. And then he meets up with an angel who has done this previously. And his name is Peter Falk. Because <laughs> he's like, I know you're there. I can't see you, but I know you're there. Um, and he's explaining about why he gave up certain things and what he does with life and why he's, you know, given up eternity of this watching guard, as it were, to be a human. And then talking about the life of division in Berlin mm. and the post-war thing. Because Peter Falk is researching in like a, a, a Nazi film basically mm. um and that he will be taking part in he was like i want to go back and see and you know walk the streets of berlin after the war and see how it's still divided and yada 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 and it's it's really well done it's really interesting and has such a a a, a time capsule of germany at that point mm. and there's actually a sequel to it which is fine it may be on the master list mm. called far away so close um and it's 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 a real examination of this country, this culture. And we mentioned this in the, in the cities and film thing with Tokyo. When you're on the, lo I don't want to say losing side because Nazis were obviously a fucking atrocity, but mm. German people were also swept up into it. You know, you mm. couldn't, you, you know, it was death or nothing else and that kind of thing. I'm not defending, etc. But when your country is like, what the fuck are we now? Mm. What do we do? How do we exist? That, that national identity, um, especially if you go back further, the German national identity was, to be conquered by Napoleon and stuff, and then the mm. Holy Roman Empire. It's this weird existence. And so, you know, all this comes into this movie um, <laughs> and features a concert by Nick Cave. And it's like, <laughs> what is this fucking film? But it is brilliant and really well done and exceptionally sharp. And it got a remake mm. uh, about 10 years later. And this very you know, dark, interesting, introspective, beautifully haunting soundtrack uh, German movie was remade as a straight love story by the director of Casper, <laughs> film I, I like, Fucking hell. starring Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage. Oh, no. And I don't want the world to see us because I... Don't think they'd understand. That fucking soundtrack. <laughs> I'm pretty sure more people own that soundtrack than saw that fucking movie. Yeah. Um, it's where that goddamn uh, Sarah McDonald. In the arms of an angel. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that comes like out. <laughs> every like dead dog charity in America. Anyway, so this story is a little different now because it's obviously, it's like, well, it's not in East, West Germany, the, the, the Berlin Wall. What's it about? Los Angeles. The City of Angels. My God, you're right. <gasps> Makes so much sense, Matthew. Yeah, now it's called City of Angels. The city of biblically accurate angels. <laughs> um, and uh, Damiel is now Seth, sure, by Nicolas Cage. And uh, Marion, this, this trapeze artist, is now Maggie Rice, a doctor no less. Mm. Like, sure. And Cassiel's still Cassiel, except it's Andre Brower, and he's fucking great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... There's a wonderful eeriness to the angels and the angelic creatures, and there's lots of inner monologues, and it's very, it's, it's what people 
think a European movie is. <laughs> it's a lot of black and white, a lot of smoking, a lot of monologues, a lot of voiceover, a lot of highfalutin ideas about death and garden mm. and the war. And you're like, yeah, that's a European movie right there. <sighs> City of Angels is just like, I'll go down there with the people. I want to fuck my grind. <laughs> you're like, Nick, you can't do that. I'm an angel. I'm going to touch you. So, and there's a lot of touching in that movie. Um, there's a quote in the film, which is like, he talks about, you know, understanding certain things and it's like, you just feel stuff. And he says, what am I doing here right now? And she's like, touching me. How do you know? Because I can feel it. Yeah, it's that. You don't do that enough. It's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're taking all the nuance and introspective, amazing, interesting, you know, depth of this movie and you made it a wank fest. <laughs> uh, it's, it's bad. Um, and it's one of those examples of like, what are you adding to this? Mm. Well, <sighs> don't know. What are you taking away? A lot. Yeah, most of it. Well, it's, it's less weird. It's like, I think you've made it just as weird, if not more weird. You could easily recut this movie as a horror film. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, he's a guy from Canada and uh, Meg Ryan's a doctor now and she loses a patient and goes crying. So, I'm going to reveal myself to her. Why? She needs me right now. It's like, okay, thank you, Nick. Um, <laughs> Let me open up my trench coat and reveal myself. <laughs> Eyes and wings. <laughs> Andrew Brower's like, you know, don't do it. It's a bad idea. And they're all just gathered on the beach watching the sunrise. And it's like, you made it creepy. You made them. And they're all touching people like, I'm going to support you and put my hand on your shoulder. It's like, stop being so fucking weird. When Germans do it, it's not weird. And that's, that should be a thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, this film is really trashy, really 90s, really missed the fucking point. Um, and yet some people really love it. And I know those people, if they would watch the Vin Vendors version, would fucking hate it. Yeah. Um, because it is so aggressively German. Mm -hmm. And if it's of its time and so 80s and so weird. Um, and, and weirdly shot as well. Uh, whereas City of Angels is just really straightforward, really 90s, really obvious. Glossy. Really glossy. Um, and it's like, you know, there's a whole like him sitting on the, with uh, Damian Castiel sitting on the Brandenburg Gate and looking over where the, this sort of like um, angel statue is for obvious reasons, mm. looking down and the people look up and for a moment they think they see something. It's like, oh, it's if they want to see us, but they don't know how to see us and all that kind of interesting mm. stuff about how we interpret the world, but we're so caught up into things. Except in the, Los Angeles version, it's them just hanging out on a streetlight somewhere <laughs> in the middle of a, in the middle of a freeway, saying, "Oh yeah," and it looks shit. <laughs> the see the back green screen backdrop was terrible. Anyway, dumb film, really stupid. <sighs> the ending of of Wings of Desire is solid and makes sense. The ending of uh, City of Angels does not, and I hate it. <laughs> I don't want to spoil things because people want to watch these boys films so. Go watch themselves. And um, with that, over to you, Jack, for your last pick. Hey, I want to talk about an Oscar-winning movie. Mm -hmm. we, we hinted at it a little bit earlier. A film where they took an original, remade it only a few years later, and one of the greatest directors in cinema history won an Academy Award for it. Finally. Finally. Not for any of the classics. <laughs> Not for some of the best films ever made, although it's still a banger. Talking about Martin Scorsese's The Departed from 2006 and its earlier 
and to correct the voiceover at the time in the Academy not the Japanese movie Infernal Affairs. <laughs> I, wa- I watched the clip earlier today. Was a, uh, because it, the adapted screenplay Oscar also went to William Monaghan, who wrote The Departed. Yeah. And it was like, based on the original Japanese film Infernal Affairs. And it's like, oh, God, this is such a Hong Kong movie. Mm-hmm. And it's only from four years ago. It's in 2002. It's not like... You didn't do your research from 40 years ago or something. Five minutes. Google was a thing back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Search engines were a thing. Go and fucking look it up. Like, that little bit of, like, again, we were talking about earlier, like, cultural research and understanding mm-hmm. of just doing the basic, the bare fucking minimum to understand <laughs> people's cultures and history and stuff. Just to say, like, oh, all Asian cinema is Japanese is such a disservice and discredit to so many amazing different filmmakers all across Asia. Mm-hmm. And to just distill what is one of the most like important and influential Hong Kong films of the 21st century, to then just be like, ah, yeah, they, he adapted it from that Japanese movie. And the fact that Scorsese, the Martin Scorsese, won finally, as you said earlier, Matt, like finally won an Academy Award as Best Director for The Departed, I think shows how great The Departed is. But a lot of people really sleep on Infernal Affairs. I think Infernal Affairs is fucking brilliant. I think the whole trilogy is good. I, the whole trilogy is good. I totally agree with you, yeah. Mm. And I think we talked about it on our live stream. We, did, we talked about Scorsese films and compared them mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and talked about how much we love The Departed. Mm-hmm. And I think the, again, hello, I've got themes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to my interseason episodes. I've got themes the whole time. It's explorations of the same story, but with a slightly different perspective and and yes essentially using a very similar plot structure but taking a slightly different angle on the characters on the setting and twisting it around and how that makes so much of a difference because ostensibly the plot is the same thing but there are little twists and turns just slight little tweaks and adjustments that then become this butterfly effect that changes characters fates and things like that and fate is such an important part in infernal affairs whereas at least from my perspective the departed very much explores is less about fate and more about choice it's almost like the other side of the same coin right if that ain't the most fucking asian slash american outlook on life right asian cinema looking at things like destiny and fate is very cliched but that is an inherent part of a lot of Chinese mythology and culture and stuff, and the, the building on, like, as we are saying earlier, these fundamental building blocks of storytelling that permeate humanity, right? I know I'm getting big and philosophical here, but stick with me. And then coming over to something like The Departed, where it is so much more grounded, it, it is far less of, like, the Hong Kong action stuff you see in Infernal Affairs. It is way more of a character study. It is way more about... Damon and DiCaprio and Nicholson and Mark fucking Wahlberg again. Good Mark Wahlberg this time. The best Mark Wahlberg. My favourite Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that just shifting it not to Los Angeles, we're not doing City of Angels, we're not off to New York or anything like that, we're going to Boston specifically. Which is not Scorsese's thing. Exactly. Italian-American. Exactly. Going off to almost Scorsese, like making himself uncomfortable and putting himself in a different situation on purpose to really kind of reframe that whole thing. And contrasting that to Hong Kong, 
I think is such an interesting thing. Because bear in mind, this is, again, as we have explored previously through like Shanghai Nights and all that kind of other stuff and, and various other bits and pieces coming through to modern day Hong Kong. The fact that Hong Kong was a colony for years and years and years yeah. is so entrenched in its history. Mm-hmm. It's something that's unavoidable. And that is only just barely in 2002, like post-colonial Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. It's mad how recent that shit is. How, um, what was it we watched for this show where there's the opening scene as the handover? Rush hour. Rush that's hour, it. Yeah. yeah, it's a rush hour. It's like, yeah. There's the literal like handover from the Brits. Like, here you go. You're allowed your own country back now. Oh, weird shit mm. that we like to brush under the rug as Brits. But the fact that that is able to explore infernal affairs is so obviously tied. If, if I'm again trying not to spoil anything, but yeah. both films are so tied around corruption and undercover cops. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they actually undercover? Are they actually working for the criminals? And blah 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 blah. It's full of twists and turns and betrayals and all this kind of stuff. And I think what The part Departed does specifically is make you buy into those characters and believe those characters. I think it is a stronger character piece than Infernal Affairs is, but I think Infernal Affairs has a stronger narrative. And as you said, Matt, going through into the trilogy of all three, part, yeah, all three parts yeah. of Infernal Affairs, I think you then are able to build those relationships with some of those characters. And understand the intricacies and the plot and the the history and the culture behind the whole thing but standalone i think departed is a stronger character piece but infernal affairs has much better accent it's much more of a thriller and it is is a more interesting like visual film than the departed is yeah i i I fully agree i i also add to that though that one thing that scorsese injects the to infernal affairs through the departed is because uh, it's not just like you know, oh, you know, we've we've done this in America now. That's the difference. Um, it's hugely about immigration identity. Yes, very much. And so. that's where Scorsese can tap into it because for the Irish American story, the Italian American story isn't that different. Yeah. Where it's like you are a dirty foreigner. You are a coming, you know, fleeing from a from a, an impoverished land because of you know starvation and stuff, and. You have two choices. You have this gun and you become a criminal or this gun and you become a cop. Yep. Pick one. And that was again true for a lot of Italians and things like that. The history of like, even to this day, like the Irish cop. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mentality, that stereotype still pervades. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the part of taking that angle on it as well, the whole, not just undercover in that regard, but also turning on your own people and being an informer and that kind of stuff. That takes an interesting angle that Infernal Affairs has elements of, but a very different kind of story. Yeah. Hence why you've got the whole, because um, it's the whole, like, you know, you're from the bad area of town or the good area of town, and this comes across with, with Boston with, with the interrogation. you got um, Damon's character being interrogated, saying, why do you want to be a cop? You know, oh, sorry, he's like, oh, here you go, great, thank you very much, put them through. But then it gets to Costigan, it gets to DiCaprio, why do you want to be a cop? And it gets the whole, like, do you actually want to do some good? Or are you just wanting to bash someone's face in what is it because if you do you, you know you, you can can you actually do the whole you've if you're from a family divorced you can drop your r's and you were you, you had two personalities and all this sort of stuff so yeah i can see yeah it's it's a good example of a remake that people 
don't realize it's a remake and is exceptionally good because they're two different things that both operate incredibly well together. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize obviously the difference in names is a huge thing there. The fact that it's Scorsese, I think inherently makes people who are more familiar with Western cinema be like, well, it's more Scorsese film. It's got a, a level of prestige already, right? You know, and we think as we're going to talk about throughout the rest of the episode, as we talked about in the first half, and as we're going to talk about very much so in season 12, remakes have a bad reputation inherently. Yeah. And you don't think Martin Scorsese and remakes fit well together because that's just they're just two things that don't mesh in the world of cinema. Mm. But Even though he is someone who has always been incredibly transparent about drawing influence oh, from other stuff yeah. and saying yeah, like, yeah, 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 lately I've been watching this and this and this, and I think that's really evident in, a in... wanky Tarantino way. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that's really evident in, you know, the way I... I, I I think it was Shutter Island he was doing where he talked he was talking about watching a lot of Asian cinema and mm, stuff and mm. and things like that and 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 just always being incredibly honest in terms of you know yeah I watch a lot of films and they influence me and I try and draw from an incredibly broad palette and of course that's going to all storytellers do. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're both absolutely excellent. I think even more so than Solaris I think these movies have more parity in terms of quality and things mm, like that i think mm. they're both wholehearted recommendations for me to go and explore and, and watch we you, voted the departed our favorite scorsese film I we believe, did somewhat mm. controversially yeah very, very controversially <laughs> i stand by that i think departed is fucking brilliant it is one of the films when i think of you know, most people think of like m night Shyamalan with like twists and stuff like that mm-hmm. when it comes to oh shit, I didn't see that coming and I could never have predicted that and that kind of twist. And there are a couple, by the way. Oh, yeah, it's not yeah. just like, oh, I'm not spoiling like, oh, it's the last like 30 seconds or whatever. There are a couple of moments in The Departed when I was watching it for the first time. And if you don't know much about The Departed, I've purposefully kept this description as, as light as possible. Mm. If you can go in as blind as possible, I have a feeling you will be as surprised and shocked and delighted as I was when I first watched it. I was like, Oh shit! Oh wow, that's that's the big reveal. Like no, 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 the big reveal's still coming. That's just like a big reveal. There's an even bigger one right behind that as well. And there's the layers of that shit that I think just works so well for the Departed and the fact that he is such a stellar cast and Mark Wahlberg <laughs> doing his best performance, as we said. But DiCaprio and Damon in the mid two thousands. And good old Jack Nicholson being mm. Jack Nicholson. Jack being Nicholson doing shit off script, s- terrifying everybody. Slimy, horrible motherfucker on and off camera. <laughs> he was a nightmare to work with, apparently. Um, it's Jack. Jack being Jack is the is the the way that Hollywood has described him for the last fifty years. Yep. Yeah. But it, it, I think it's masterful performances. Obviously, Scorsese behind the whole thing. It's going to look great. Everything flows so beautifully. And Infernal Affairs, I think, has its own flair and style to it that if you're less familiar with Hong Kong films, I think it works as a really, really good introduction to Mm. the broader Mm. scope of Hong Kong movies. It's not going like full out, like over the top action and like full into like wire work and wuxia and all that kind of stuff. If you want to ease yourself in with kind of like a modern take on cop thrillers and crime dramas and all that kind of stuff but also have that kind of asian influence that hong kong action you only really will get from hong kong actors and performers and stunt actors and all this kind of stuff 
It's got some amazing scenes, amazing shots, amazing action sequences, and mm. some fantastic performances in their own right from that side of things. I just think a lot of people kind of underestimate Infernal Affairs because The Departed is so lauded and so respected and Scorsese yeah, yeah, and yeah. Academy Awards and blah, 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 blah that I've already talked about. Go and watch Infernal Affairs. And if you really like it, as Matt and I just said, watch all three. I think they're worth exploring. And yeah, if you haven't seen The Departed, go and watch that as well. So go and watch all of them, all four movies, <laughs> and it'll still go be shorter than Solaris. Go watch all the movies. <laughs> Don't watch City of Angels. <laughs> no, no. Mine's all pretty much wholehearted recommendations for myself, yep, I think. Yep. Tim, over to you for your second pick. Uh, my second films are also remade three years apart. Yeah. But until we started researching this episode, I had no idea that the American version of this film was a remake of an, I, another film. Most people don't. Most I think people, people do not. Listening now are going to have their fucking minds blown. I didn't yeah. until I saw the show notes. I'll put yeah. it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so. The original that I'm talking about is 1991's La Totale, uh, a French film. And the film that it was remade into is 1994's True Lies by James Cameron. True Lies is a fucking remake. It's a Who remake knew? of a French film. Bloody hell. Yeah. Weird. Um, the original is pretty fucking French. <laughs> uh, I don't mess about. It's pretty fucking it's, French. It's pretty fucking French. It's uh, it's very early nineties as well aesthetically, um, and very. I don't want to say it's shot like a TV episode because oh. uh, Claude Zidi, who's the director, is a very experienced director, and it has its moments. But budget wise, it looks like a TV show from the early 90s. Um, True Lies, being a James Cameron production from the mid-90s... Full of people coming, fucking horses with ponytails. Yeah. Uh, coming off of the back of Terminator 2, uh, starring Schwarzenegger, um, it, is a, it is a huge film, massive production. Um, it outs like I don't know what the comparative budgets were, but it would not surprise me if it was something like f- five times the budget of La Total. Maybe more. Maybe more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah. If you if you haven't seen either of these films, and I, and I think True Lies is something of a. A, a weird outlier in James Cameron's career. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I quite i i have I have affection for True Lies. I like bits of it. Yeah, and there's some good comedy in there. Yeah, uh, mostly Paxton. Um, yeah, but yeah, something about it just feels like a bit flat for Cameron. Yeah, I think it. I think it is, uh, and I think that it seems like such a weird choice because he's coming off the back of T two, as we just said. And you would think he would be able to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Which is essentially the position he got to pretty soon after that when he did Titanic. And then they were like, oh, well, here's all the money ever. Spend- I'm off to the bottom of the sea. Yeah, spend- like- yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go live at the bottom of the ocean and also <laughs> develop new technologies. But this, feels, this almost feels like work for hire by Cameron. Yeah. 
That's which fair. is it's a weird thing is, to say for one of the great like directors of all time. Yeah, and an action director who had already established himself as a as a huge presence in Hollywood, who was able to do massive blockbusters, who was able to do incredible things with sci-fi storytelling. Yeah, it, it it feels so weird for him to have this weird spy comedy spy thriller sort of slap in the middle of his like the height of his career kind of thing yeah. when he really wants to be making the abyss and stuff like that and you know think about spies as they usually blend in with the crowd and yes. nothing's a spy better than the fucking austrian yeah. arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> giant wrestler body personality what the fuck uh yeah so if if you have not seen True Lies or La Total, I would not be surprised if people have not seen La Total. It was very hard to track down. Um, essentially, the premise is that the main character is a spy for a sort of an- counter-terrorist organization, a government organization, um, but leads uh, a very normal suburban life. And his wife has no idea that he is a spy. He's just a normal bodybuilding guy. He's just a normal bodybuilding guy who works in IT. Um, And then the wife begins having not necessarily an affair, but a relationship. An infernal affair. An infernal affair with um, another man who claims to be a spy but is not. And at the same time, because the main character is, is, is convinced that his wife is having an affair, he starts spying on her and then kidnaps his wife and the, the, this other guy uh, and basically ropes his wife into his spy life through some very French farsi type stuff. It sounds French as fuck. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of mistaken identities. There's a lot of characters not able to see who's really talking to them and stuff like that. And most of the most of the comedy stuff carries over from the French. Like, broadly speaking, all of the relationship stuff exists in the French film. And then the action stuff is pretty much completely changed in the the American version. Yes. It's a whole different thing. It's like in the original, it's like an arms dealer. There's a thing involving like a prostitute and stuff like that. And then in the American one, it's like Middle Middle Eastern terrorists. (laughs) Art Malik gets hooked onto a missile at the end. And it's a lot, a a lot more American, a lot more James Cameron in a lot Mm. of ways. Um, and very bombastic uh, and all those things but the 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 core of the story really is about these relationships um and that does translate over you know we we talked about when you're doing a remake you're trying to drill down to what the core is about and and in these it's this kind of farcical uh sort of suburban lives sort of the fantasy of of being a spy versus the mundanity of you know married life and and all this kind of stuff um 
it almost feels like a weird influence on the Incredibles in some ways. Yeah, kind of. Um, it's it's kind of like the the born identity. Of... Every every fucking suburban boring ass man like oh that could be me. It's like no, it can't be you, you yeah. div. That's not how that works. Yeah, and it's like well, I could be a spy. It's like no, <laughs> no, no. You let's be no. in the same way. You'd like now... to play at being a spy yeah. in the same way. People probably go now. Well, I could be John Wick. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Keanu Reeves is John Wick in every other way and there's no one else can be John Wick yeah um and and so yeah it's it's a it's a fascinating case study because as much as the the original was was very much it was an action comedy you know and there are action set pieces in it they are filmed competently enough the remake true lies the action is very good because it's James Cameron it doesn't feel like it has that spark to it. But also, at one point, Arnold Schwarzenegger rides a horse into a big glass elevator. Um, yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis drops an Uzi down, down a set of stairs and it takes out everybody in the room. Um, again, when you describe True Lies, it sounds like a French film. Yeah. It sounds like a Jean Dujardin kind of comedy. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um so it it is that weird thing because I think people don't people don't think of it as a remake. People don't know that it started out as a French film. But then as soon as you start saying all these things about it, you go, <laughs> mm, Yeah, that of is of course it is, yeah. Yeah, that is pretty fucking French, isn't it? Yeah, there's a scene where <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger sits in the dark with a voice changer and tells his wife to do a sexy dance for him. That was and, filthy French. And he does <laughs> and she doesn't know it's him. And then he's about to surprise her and be like, haha, it's actually me, and also I'm a spy. And now let's bone. And that yeah, that's pretty fucking French. Yeah, and the worst part is when you say it with a French thing, you think, oh, yeah, to be fair, that's quite cool. It's quite quite interesting. And when you do the American style, I was like, ah, I'm not comfortable with this. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing, but one makes it really greasy. Also, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis do not... Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger as a romantic lead has always struggled. I, this film would work so much better with someone different yeah. instead of Schwarzenegger. <gasps> now, I know it, it, very early in his career, he's still rapping at this point, but come on. Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I thought you were going to say Will Smith. I thought Will Smith as well. I don't know why. I was going down a sensible road, boys. <laughs> I was Will going Smith to silly town. Yeah. I mean, Will Smith and Jamie Lee Curtis is not a sensible couple. Silly town. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, a, a weird one, and one that I when when this topic first came up. Obviously, did not come to mind because I didn't know it was a remake. But the fact that it was made me just kind of go, "Huh." I have to talk about this. I have to talk about this. Yeah, I get that. Matt, round to you for the final entry. Uh, mine is the final pick for a reason. Because it kind of isn't what we've been describing this entire episode. How rude, Matthew! A little, a little bit. So my two films. Uh, are the 1961 film Yojimbo and the 1964 remake of it, A Fistful of Dollars. 
Now, you may be wondering, what's the problem there? It's a samurai film in a western. We covered this earlier with Seven Samurai. Literally, it's because it's Kurosawa being done. It's because Sergio Leone is an Italian. And yes, this thing was shot with, you know, dubbed, you know, for <laughs> Americans in English. But it's an Italian movie. So we're into this weird territory of international to international remake sort of situations. It counts. I think, I think that absolutely counts. Oh, it counts. does count. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have picked it if it did. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for, thank you for that. But that's the point. It's like the whole... It's still made by an Italian, yes, but for American sensibilities, as a Western shot in Spain. Um, so for those who don't know, Yojimbo is samurai film, also by Akira Kurosawa, and it's fucking great, obviously. Um, I'm very biased, but of course I'm saying that. Uh, Tishiro Fune plays this sort of very strange, um, sort of nameless character. And uh, and he's a, a sort of wandering Ronin, man, you know, samurai without a master. Sanjiro is is what they call him. Sanjiro basically means thirty something, so it's sad. he's just he's just this guy, and um, he sort of wanders into this quiet town, which is in the middle of a gang war, basically between two different sides, two warring factions, two warring families, um, and he decides I want to play both sides off against each other, and uh, make a bit of money out of this. Because fuck you. Um, and he has this sort of uh, roll of his shoulders because he's a sort of like restless, you know, wandering, wild dog-like character. Very mercurial, very hard to read. And then you've got um, Tatsuya Nakadai playing uh, the role of Unosuke, who is a armed with a gun. Sort mm. of and that, that adds a huge different thing yeah. because of the nature of the time period and guns being used. So huge, huge thing there. And the way it's shot is beautiful. Quintessentially, obviously, very Kurosawa. And it got a sequel called Sanjuro, which is very good as well. It's so right. We, it was my pick in our Samurai exactly. episode. Because it's fucking, it's, it's so good. It's a fucking masterpiece. It really is. The literal masterpiece. Now, here's a weird thing. I, I may have mentioned this before, I think, possibly. Maybe in that episode specifically. Mm -hmm. I remember... Like Japan? Uh, never heard of the place. Ah. Um, <laughs> a Fistful of Dollars... I remember very early on in my sort of teenage years liking films and you do the thing all teenage kids do. You go, right, I'm like this because of this actor. I like this because it's a director. And you watch all of their stuff. You consume all the stuff. And you become very defensive and, um, and um, protective of it. Say that, no, 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 this is per everything they did is perfect. Because, you, you know, it's, it's footballification you support no matter what. And I did that with Sergio Leone. I was like, yes, this must be, this is the stuff. This, this is my thing. And then someone pointed out that A Fistful of Dollars was a remake. I said, what the fuck do you mean is a remake? And then I got into the whole like, you know, Kurosawa thing. Ah, so this is the person. And then I read the Kurosawa's career thing. Oh shit, no, this is real. Now, not slating Sergio Leone, who's made some amazing movies. A Fistful of Dollars translate that Western, uh, sorry, that, that, uh, that um, samurai tale to a Western, which had already been done in Seven Samurai uh, uh, with Magnificent Seven. So we'd already seen that it was possible. But this is so obviously playing off again. And it's the same thing. The only difference is that the, the gunslingers, they're all gunslingers now, rather than just one, one guy armed with a gun. Um, but he's a particularly good gunslinger. And obviously it's, you know, it, it's, it's a Sergio Leone film. So you've got the main role being played by Clint Eastwood, who brings a different vibe to Mifune, but still that same air of 
uh, arrogance and and um, playing each other off against each other and, and being cool as being fuck, cool as all shit. Um, and Gian Maria Valente as Ramon Rojo. It's just like yes, this is so fucking cool. And because the Baxters and the Rojos plays a little bit kind of better in a way than the the, the Japanese version, because like no 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 no, you've got the um the like a better phrase, the white side of town and the the uh, Latina side of town, and they played off against each other. And they're, you know, typical fucking territory you're tripping over each other in this tiny little rundown space. And it's weird because Fistful of Dollars launched a lot of Leone's stuff. From there, he beca- the, the revisionist westerns, um, oh, sorry, the spaghetti westerns, the way they were being shot. The, the extra hyper-violence of it all, the extreme camera angles, sometimes just mirroring what Kurosawa was doing. It's also a, a, a remake that doesn't give any credit whatsoever to Japanese cinema. The Italians <laughs> are like, I don't give a fucking shit, um, unsurprisingly. Um, but both of them hold equal worth in their own right. They're doing the exact same thing, but they're both doing it extremely bloody well. Um, and they were filmed in such close succession of again that three year gap of like this film just came out great it sounds really good we'll do one of those yeah um it's like, uh, okay fine which is very much the spirit of the spaghetti westerns of oh just yeah like what works okay yeah we'll take that yeah we'll do our version fuck you um and fuck you fuck you and it's it's amazing because that, that it, for a lot of people even now your first exposure to that film like oh there's a samurai version of that movie. It's like, no, 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 no. But even though it's three years difference, it's like, well, how long would it take for that film to migrate to other countries? Yeah. How fast is the other one moving around? You wouldn't know. Yeah, you've got you've to marvel at that back in that period of time. Yeah. Because to, for us, it's relatively simple to be like, oh, there's this new samurai film that's come out in Japan. Oh, great, you know. Mm. What streaming services are on? Oh, it's not on any. <laughs> oh, I'll find it. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In 1964, you couldn't do that. No, that wasn't that wasn't an option. And you had home, to get like original reels. Home media wasn't a thing. Nope. VHSs, Betamaxes, translations, laser as well, discs from not Japanese to Italian. Yeah. Not exactly easy. Yeah. <laughs> Japanese to Italian to an American script. Um, with every actor speaking their own language on set. Yeah, yeah that. Still blows my mind yeah. to this day. I mean, you can fucking tell, but yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> the du- the dubs are egregious in those movies. Oh, they're pretty ridiculous. <laughs> but I can't. But remember. yeah, like, it's they're all one of Seventy it years ago, sixty years ago, you can kind yeah. of get away with it. Um. So it's we- it's a weird example of these two films circulating at the same time, uh, and you know, for a lot of people, Rashomon, eleven years earlier launched Kurosawa into that public consciousness. Thankfully, there's only one definitive version of Rashomon. Listeners, you get it. It's a film joke, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Synchronizers. That's the whole fucking it's, point. I, the thing is, it's not a pun. Yeah, Matt, you can't hate I that. I can't hate it. But can't s- hate it because it's so good. And yet, nah. I hate it. But the thing that made up for me was Jack just sort of hunching over to me. Is that so good? <laughs> I was very proud of that. Should, I mean, to be fair, you should be. You should be. But I feel like it's somehow a, a Simpsons joke as well. I Probably. Yeah. There, there is a Simpsons yeah. joke along those lines. Fucking. Uh... Right. 
Yeah. You love Japan, Homer. Remember uh, how much you enjoyed Rashomon? Oh, yeah. I don't remember how, it that way. That's not how I remember yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, God damn it. He's right. It's a good joke. Anyway, um, so these two films exist. And then you have to remember that they worked perfectly for their audiences. Yeah. They are really, really good at, uh, at what they do. And to the degree that I'm going to sneak out a little one here. You motherfucker. <laughs> This story's been done so many fucking times. Well, I mentioned it earlier, right? You see it translated into so much other media of like, oh, that episode of Mandalorian is just Magnificent Seven or yep. just Seven Samurai. Like, oh, that episode of this or that video game is just basically telling the same story. Yeah. You just don't even realize it because that boiling it down to its simplified parts and then mm. translating setting or characters or whatever yeah. is such an easy way of like, oh, yeah, there's a conflict, mm. there's a thing. Yeah, exactly. Turn it into yeah. local group of tough guys defend from bandits. Yeah, yeah. problems off. Just and take love actually and turn it into smoking aces. <laughs> He's never wrong. Um, so subsequently, oh, by the way, this again this is the key thing when we go to the next season of Requalizers. Doing that thing of like, if we're going to translate into something else, what works best for the story? What would be most interesting to tell the story? So taking spice, a, my God, spice. Or oh, everything in space now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean. Uh, I'm not going to spoil my Oh, 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 Something's in space. It's going to be so fucking exciting. Um, no, but the whole making a samurai film to a Western. Yeah, we've seen it done. Mm. There's another version from 1997. No, 1996. Sorry, my apologies. By Walter Hill, the director of The Warriors. Oh. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Yes. Oh, fucking hell. Prohibition era New York, right? Bloody hell. Well, yeah, that's the problem. It's Prohibition era, yes. But the place is... Because uh, it's still like a western town. And you're like... Ah, right. And it should have been... I think the city would have made more sense of it. But it is literally Prohibition era. Bruce Willis's character walks in and there's an Irish side and an Italian side. And I'm like, fucking works. That's Chicago for you, yeah? And it's like, where's it set? It's like... America. Kind, yeah, kind of the same town that fucking... Fistful of dollars is set in, really. It's just out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, it's, where is it? It's Texas. Like, Texas? No! No, no! <laughs> Texas, known for its big Irish and Italian immigrant population. Yeah, it's like, oh, we're going to sneak it across the border from Mexico. I'm like, sure. But no, you make yeah. it in a northern place within the Canada border. That makes more, that, yeah. that happened a lot. Anyway, um, so yes, it, it, and it didn't work. It does the same thing where it's like, oh, we just did the same thing. We transposed it. And again, as I said before, that whole like Al Capone, Bugsy Moran kind of like, yeah, that could be fucking really good. And it fell flat because it's like we've seen, even when these things are from like 30 plus years ago, the, the 30 year cycle comes around. It's like, this could really work really well. Didn't. Also has fucking Christopher Walken as an Irishman. He's <laughs> <it's>, it's choice. <laughs> His accent's a choice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not a good film. Um, and it's frustrating because again, it's the whole like we can do this again, and that's what we wanted to cap this all off with. Because when something like your Jimbo and a fistful of dollars exist almost in the same sphere at the same time, uh, people absorb it in different ways and see which one they think came first. And then some will always say, "That's not a bad idea for a film. We should do that." And if you don't do enough with it to make it new or interesting or change enough, or keep it enough the same way. Because again, those two are quintessentially the same thing. And Last Man Standing is also mostly the same thing. It doesn't work. It falls flat. Something goes wrong. And what should work on paper does not work in delivery. 
So, and the worst part is, and this is something we'll probably come up to when we talk about full season stuff and requalizers, you can never tell in advance. On paper, something's yeah. definitely not fucking worth doing. But on paper, you're like, this is the best idea I've ever had. Mm. Imagine, right, boys? Old boy. Oh, <laughs> like Josh Brolin, right? Yeah. He's in it. Yeah. Thanos and Spike- Scarlet Witch. And Spike Lee. Going at it. <laughs> For 18 um, years. Yeah. So basically, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 there's, a, there's a blueprint. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It's very hard to tell. But other times you can tell it's definitely in the toilet. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, rounding off on two goddamn masterpieces is oh, yeah, yeah, a pretty yeah. good way of finishing off. Last for, Man Standing. For the inter- yeah, <laughs> and most importantly, Last Man Standing. Fucking the finale of the interseason. I own Last Man Standing. Fucking hell, Matthew. I'm glad you didn't say Blu-ray, because that would have been offensive. That would have been... A, that would Is have been it a, even yeah. available on home? Ah, fucking maybe. Uh, let's hope not. But that does finish off the interseason, sort of. Because, as we said at the top of the show, we'll be back with Requalizers, but we're taking a little bit of a break. If you're listening to us on the usual podcast feed, you're going to get some Patreon-exclusive stuff, hand-picked by the three of us, so some of the best highlights and essentially full extra interseason episodes just without the ads and stuff and uh that will cover you for the next couple of months while we write prepare and record a bunch of requalizer stuff and oh boy we've teased quite a lot of the episodes throughout this throughout this episode sneaky Some sneaky. sneaky little discussions so get your calculators out and start theorizing boys and girls we got some interesting remakes coming up very interesting indeed. And we already know one of them's in space. Matthew. Every single one <laughs> of them. Not going to lie, I did think about doing that. I, you and, and I, patterns and things, I can, I can see that. I may have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I may have a theme. Uh-huh. But we'll get to that, like I said, in a few weeks' time. We're going to be, uh, yeah, a couple, couple of months. We'll be back in May. And it comes around to Requalizers. We will, of course, keep you up to date on all that kind of stuff. If you want to carry on listening through the podcast feed, please do. There's some good content coming out soon. Don't worry. Like I said, handpicked by us, so it's not just random stuff. It'll be some of the best Patreon-exclusive interseason mm. episodes we've recorded over the last few years. If you want to talk about remakes, international or otherwise, and theorize about Requalizers and stuff, we are Sequelizers on all of the usual places you can find us on all the usual social media stuff. Sequelizers.com for all the links to everything, especially the Discord. I'm sure there'll be a lot of theorizing and plotting and scheming about requalizers and remakes and all that kind of stuff on the Discord. That is probably the best place to go for up-to-the-minute hot takes and debates around sequelizers and various other topics as well. I am JLW Chambers on every bloody social media at this point even the ones people seem to move off and then come back off again i'm still on some of them matthew how can people find you across social media the internet and international remakes stogs now s-t-o-g-h-z you can also go to cheeseman.com to see the things that i'm making because so do the red right hand okay to see the reviews that i write tim if i was to remake you in your own image (laughs) but a little bit different what would your tag handle be um you can see me remade uh by the wonderful john scarrett 
who provided our amazing avatars, which uh-huh. I use uh, on most of my social media platforms, uh, including Twitter, trivia underscore lad, uh, and Letterboxd, where I occasionally uh, post reviews and stuff. Um, I've uh, now are what we've watched recently has gone has gone live. I can post some of my more recent viewings that I've kept off of there to avoid spoiling the episode mm. for people. Um, You're going to review Cocaine Bear? Uh, I've already reviewed oh, Cocaine Bear. Tim, My brilliant. review was very simple. It was just Cocaine Bear did nothing wrong. <laughs> Harambe. Apart from all the cocaine. No, 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 I, no, support, no. I support the Bears' choices. <laughs> and if that is on a note to finish the interseason on, I don't know what is. Like I said, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with Requalizers. Enjoy the Patreon-exclusive content if you're listening on the podcast feed. Enjoy the break <laughs> if you're a Patreon. And, uh, yeah, we will see you very, very soon for lots more remake discussion. Season 12, a.k.a. Requalizers. Oh, such sights to show you. Matt can't come without juggling, apparently. And you know what's nice about this? No outtakes no. yet. <laughs> Juggalos! That, that doesn't mean it can't be put on as a little bit at the end of the episode as a little extra bonus it, moment. Maybe. Maybe. Dude, maybe. I'm editing this motherfucker. It's absolutely. Doesn't make any sense. No one's going to know what that means. Juggalos Good. to masturbate. They'll understand. They know you're the juggalo of the three of us, Matthew. Born with the hatchet. Okay, let's go. He's a big ICP. I wouldn't say big. <laughs> I put on a bit of weight recently. <laughs> <laughs> Been to a gathering or two. I almost went to a concert. <laughs> <laughs> My brother wanted to go. Uh, oh, God. Back in his I season. assume not the priest brother. No, not the other, other brother. No, the other one. The other okay, one. good. <laughs> we did the non-priest the juggalo <laughs> obviously <laughs> the one when I went oh, to the there's Matt the priest in the juggalo <laughs> walk into a bar a priest a juggalo and an Irishman <laughs> but they're all Irish that's true yeah. um, to the degree that when I went to America for the first time uh, Andrew my middle of his only request was to give me some Fago <laughs> and I said I don't know where they sell it man I got it mm. turns out you're going to get it in certain states I was like I was and then he, did, he went over to New York and he eventually found some and said, just shit orange juice. <laughs> was what do you fucking think it would be? So, anyway. um, and now it's been rebranded as Logan Paul or KSI. Prime. 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 Uh, yep. Anyway. anyway. <laughs>